Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Jay Rule, as always, uh, and alongside me here is... Derek Cronus, or Derek, and we've got two pretty awesome guests with us today. We've got Nate and Matt from Podcast of the Fallen. Got both of them here. Hello. We're here. We made it. We made it. How's it going, It's going pretty good. We're in the big leagues now, so feel kind of proud about that. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) But yeah, I appreciate the vote of God. <laughs> You've got one more interview with Erickson than we do, so oh, that's yeah. fair. that's fair. And and I saw y'all's document, so I mean, I feel like I need to start taking at least some decent notes now of something. <laughs> sometimes it's really hard to paraphrase things, and I I think we both yeah. I mean, sometimes a lot of it, not a lot of it, but in some cases, you know, some of that stuff is like word for word, just because how could you write it any differently or any better or, you know, make it summarize it more briefly and where it makes sense. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, like when I'm writing these summaries, I feel like a fourth grader just discovering how to write. So uh, comparatively to Mr. Erickson here, I try to write it in a way where like I would understand if someone was reading it to me, he's he's really good with his words. So it's one of those things where like I dumb it down is probably the wrong way to say it, but just for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's a he's one hell of a writer, that's for sure. Yes. Yes. Uh, I was just saying indeed, he is he is a hell of a writer. But uh Nate, Matt, um, I know we've shouted you guys out on our show before, but um, if you guys want to introduce yourselves, um, tell us a little bit about yourselves and um, your show, uh, all that good stuff. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you can go first this time. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I am, I, I am, I guess what you would say the Malazan vet on our show. Um, this is my so. I my experience with the series is weird because the first time I read the series up to Toll the Hounds and that stopped because life got in the way. So this is my fourth time through for books one through eight and my third time for books nine through ten when we eventually get there. Um I've read all the other books in the world once each. And I think Matt and I have decided that we're gonna go through those as well, go through the Ian C S a lot stuff when we get there. But Matt was about to start the series because I had hyped it up a lot for him. Um, specifically by telling him that there were undead dinosaurs with swords for arms. And (laughs) 
good. And good. Uh, bring it in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what ultimately hooked him into wanting to read it. And then I texted him and said, Hey, a uh, crazy idea, but do you want to do a podcast? And Matt, for some reason said, yes. Huh. I know I how that was. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, yeah. Matt, uh, we both have a friend who is uh, tech savvy and takes care of the editing and everything. I know. I was like, I would not be able to do this if I had to do all the editing. I would I would lose my mind oh. listening to my own voice <laughs> on repeat. I don't know how Nate does it, but yeah. Well, I'm Matt. I guess I'll properly introduce myself. Um, I'm the newbie. I don't know nothing about the series except that there's undead dinosaurs and it sounded really cool in a lot of other aspects. Basically, kind of what happened is uh, I finished reading like all of the mainline Cosmere Sanderson stuff over the summer. And then I was like, well, what should I read next? And I saw, I was at the bookstore. And I was like, I'll just get the, cause they had gardens of the moon there. So I picked it up and I told Nate, I'm like, hey, I'm going to start it soon. And then that's when he texted me shortly after about the podcast. And I was like, you know what? I hear this is a pretty complex series. I'm sure I'd get lost and confused. So, I mean, it probably won't be a bad idea and school coming up. It'll probably keep me trucking through and keeping on track. And so, yeah. That's why I'm here, because uh, I don't know. Nate convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I've had a lot of fun listening to you guys, and now I'm bummed. I've got like probably one more episode of yours I'll be able to listen to <laughs> as oh, you guys sure. are as you guys are passing us by here. But it is really cool that Nate. Yeah, you're still the vet here, um, but the three of us, Justin, Matt. Uh, you know that we're all on the same page. Uh, you know we we've all read to the same point now. And it's been a lot of fun watching you guys catch up to us and listening to your reactions and, and what you guys have to say. And so I hope we'll, we'll have a lot of fun talking tonight. Yeah. So, Matt, what do you think about the complex story so far? Like, do you feel it's complicated? Do you feel like some of your maybe preordained expectations are coming true? Or do you feel like it's a little easier than you thought? Uh, I'd say it's a mixed bag sometimes. Because, like, I feel like... Definitely book one's a bit confusing just because like the pacing and um, just the structure of it all. And then book two was kind of like a nice um, refreshing read of like, okay, so this is what he looks like polished up a bit with his writing. So I think overall there is a, a deep complexity as I feel like we've all seen of like just the storytelling, the different POVs, the different like philosophical ideas running through the different themes. Um, in terms of the story, it's I feel like it's, not too bad to follow like for the most part like i'm following along and like being entertained as i go but i think the tr the real complexity that lies which i think makes it hard for a lot of people is just like the naming of everything and just remembering so many different names so many different characters and then hopping between the povs with all the different characters we talked about this uh it was last night actually when we record like about chapter seven and i was like I was about to start reading before I went to bed because I was like, oh, I'll just start going this and I'll read it tomorrow morning while I'm on the train. And as soon as I read the first page, I was like, I can't do this. There's like four new names on here. I'm no, I'm not going to be able to keep track of this before I go to sleep. So I think it's like there's it's definitely a lot more of a complex. It's like it's complex enough where I feel like, OK, this is this is kind of what I expected. Like it's not over the top, but I think um, there's a lot of details in there that I've definitely missed that would not have gotten without Nate kind of being like, hey, what do you think of this? Or like, did you catch this? And it's nothing like terribly spoilery or anything, but it's just like helping me understand more of the story and the structure of the plot and how the characters interact with each other, which I think could be kind of a big turnoff for some of those that aren't used to 
big complex fantasy series just reading it on their own so i could definitely see why people are like it's complex it's hard to get through those, those are my thoughts i don't know if those made sense but <laughs> no it made a ton of sense i mean i feel I, f- I felt similar um gardens of the moon i felt i was a little uh more confused but then you know of course we got into dead house gates and i'm like as you said just kind of the him coming out as a writer uh much more fleshed out and i just i don't know things just started to like pop in place for me so to speak mm-hmm. but um i do enjoy when there are veterans joining us <laughs> because uh you'll probably be annoyed at the end of the night by me asking a bunch of stuff you're like you nope. know i can't answer that justin you know <laughs> go it telling matt raffo is one of my favorite things on the podcast <laughs> like but, yeah. maybe maybe that's petty of me to be like i know this and you don't but it's Derek does really it to fun. me all the time it's fine <laughs> and he <laughs> does it all. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I don't know either, but <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of the running joke for us is we got to have a read and find out at least once an episode, once a chapter, at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's legit. Well, I suppose we should talk about Silverstone's books here. Oh, Nate, you never introduced yourself. My apologies. Go ahead and. Oh, uh, I, I introduced myself before Matt went. Oh. I must have something. Okay. All right. No, you're good. You're good. I'll find out when I edit. I'll be like, well, wow, oh, Matt, I got to Justin, obviously, you know about this. Nate, you've seen it on Facebook, but uh, check this thing oh, out. Yes. That Justin sent me. <laughs> hey, there we go. That's right. Yeah. That's nice. So that's so Derek, I guess, you know, Patreons will be able to, to view this. That's what I was thinking about is adding another tier where you would get a t-shirt or a water bottle, something like that. So cool. Sorry, Matt. I'm not as good of a co-host. I didn't get you a shirt for Christmas. <laughs> I'm just disappointed. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get Justin anything either. I wasn't expecting. <laughs> He's just like, what's your address one day? I'm like, uh, what are you sending me? And he's like, you'll see. <laughs> it's a dildo, Derek. That's what I sent you. <laughs> Matt, I guess oh. I'll warn you now. I, I do remember hearing on one of you guys' episodes saying that uh, Nate said that you don't swear. Um, it will happen here. So I hope we don't scare you off or offend you. I mean, I went through middle school and high school. I feel like I've heard most things. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I feel like middle schoolers and high schoolers are a bit more creative than we are these days. So it's true. Where are y'all calling in from again? Uh, Utah. Ooh, Utah. Very cool. I've never been out that way. I've always wanted to go out west, do something. I just had a uh, almost four-year-old beer that was from Utah tonight that my mom had. Oh, <laughs> nice. Salt Fire Brewing or something, I think it was called. It was the brewery. I've only heard of a couple, but I don't know if I've ever heard of that one. I, I might not be right on the name. I don't remember, but it was yeah. Salt something. It was in Salt Lake. I don't know where you guys are in Utah, if you're in Salt Lake or somewhere else, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're in the Salt Lake Valley. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, um, before we get started in today's episode, uh, we'd like to take a moment to thank and recognize Silverstone's books. They do actually have a physical storefront, um, so feel free to stop on by if you're in the area. Otherwise, you can check out their website at silverstonesbooks.com, where they have a large selection of fantasy, sci-fi, and horror books with the option of many signed copies at pretty decent prices. Story carries a large number of indie authors, help us help them supporting self-published authors. Also, they've been gracious enough to give us a promo code for 10% off your next order. 
That code is DJ Quest. So check out their site, check out their storefront, and pick up a book and save some cash. Nicely said. Uh, our patrons, this is going to feel a little different tonight. Mm-hmm. But we've we've got Jan, the picker of pies, Luciana Etrigan, Ryan, the topological, Damien, the rock of faces, Nate, fiddle me this. Hey, you're right in front of me. I'm and re- I'm Shield here. Anvil Dylan. You're here. That's pretty cool. Uh, can I ask where you came up with the nickname? Is that in the story or is that just a... No, so Fiddler is my favorite character and that was just... I, I saw, hey, that this phrase just popped into my head and that kind of rhymes with Fiddler, so I'll go with it. Oh, the riddle me this? Yeah, riddle me this, fiddle me this. So awesome. I just came up with it on the fly. I don't even remember what riddle me this is from. Is that a Batman? Batman Forever or something? I don't know. I think it might just be... Uh, this is my the first. Er, the first use comes from a 1693 English poem, which is a translation of ancient Roman satire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so not what Batman. Would, what guess that Batman. <laughs> it would have been cooler <laughs> if it would have. That was the easy Batman answer. Not Batman. <laughs> well, um, I, I guess this is a little different tonight. Um, did you guys? I mean, we wrote these summaries. Usually, Justin and I read them. I don't know if you guys had any interest in reading them along with us, you know, uh, switching out or anything, yeah. or if you just want us to do it and then we just talk about it. But I, I mean, I think we can make whatever work. I'm down to read a section or two. Okay. Um, no pressure or anything, Matt, if you are not interested in doing that. But yeah, I guess do one of you guys want to start this off? Uh, sure. I can start out. <laughs> just throw on Hail Marys here. Cool. Should I do the epigraph first? I'll, t- I'll take the epigraph. It's cool. Okay. Sure. Sounds good. This one's a we didn't talk about any of this. Yeah, it <laughs> so it's just a- <laughs> all improv. Uh, That's okay. Going back to our comment at the beginning, where ninety percent of it is just whatever, right? Yeah. Um, epigraph for chapter eight from Malazan's Memories of Ice: Harder the world, the fiercer the honor. Dancer. That's such a good quote. It That's is a great a one. Quote. Should I just go into it? I guess. Take her away. Gethel struggled to climb over the hills made of bones. The blood from his mangled face had now dried, though his vision was still obscured. Mumbling to himself, he said vanity was not his curse, and that there was no predicting mortal humans. Not even Hood himself could have imagined such insolence. Though now the herald's face is broken, and what is broken must be thrown away. Gethel took in the endless hills and sky, the cool dead air, and of course the bones. Gethel, speaking to no one but at Hood, said he appreciated his joke. Tossed in this heap, and now he has to crawl free from his service. He opened his warren, looking into the nearly airless realm that was Amtos Falak. He said he knew who or what Hood was, and the irony was delicious. He wondered if Hood really knew him in return. He stepped into his warren, ice walls on both sides of him. He didn't sense any eye mass or other types of intrusion, but the magic still felt weakened here, and he knew Amtos Falak was dying a slow death. Whispering, he said, they were almost done. Spiraling down into oblivion, shall he unleash his rage? No, he would not, as it was never enough. He continued walking until an unexpected fissure appeared in his path, heat and the smell of rot and decay rising from its depths. Gethel probed with the senses and said that he had not been idle. He wondered about this invitation before him and said that he was of this world. However, this stranger he spoke to was not. He said he was no longer Hood's herald. He was dismissed. And so what would the chained one say to him? Gethel entered the fissure as this was the only way he would receive an answer. 
You read that better than Derek would have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have said... practiced reading summaries on our show. <laughs> that was great. Thank he, you very much. You did, you did do a good job. And I will say I set a low bar. So <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Um, a few of my thoughts here, just the name Gethal. Just I think of the Geth from Mass Effect. I don't know if any of you guys ever played those games. No, I've I've played four hours of the first game once, like three years ago. Only four hours? Only four hours, but if, I mean, Mass Effect, it, that's the start. Like, that feels like the very start of the game, four hours in. Mm. <laughs> it's I been mean, a long time since I played it, but yeah. You got four hours on me. Um, I have not played it. I think it's because it's only on Xbox. Is it? Well, maybe maybe it. you can play it on PC, but I, I don't know if it's on place. Maybe it is. I don't know. I played it on my PS4. Oh, okay. So clearly I'm wrong. <laughs> hmm. hmm. They did uh they did do a remaster, Justin, not terribly long ago. I don't I'm sure it's probably not very expensive now. But is it, it was now? sorry, go ahead. My bad. No, you're good. I was just gonna ask, is it a first person shooter? No, it's third third person over the shoulder type thing. Gotcha. For, I no believe. Maybe yeah, I mind so. Nick, sir, I don't have, I've got the document up now. I can't see the camera. So if you guys have something, just jump right in. Um, somebody was saying something. I didn't mean to interrupt whoever that was. Oh, I, I did just want to ask, what did you guys think of uh, Gethel saying that he now knows who and what Hood is? I was wondering. I was very, yeah, very curious. I didn't really know what to make of that. I don't, Justin, I don't know if you, if you had any thoughts, but I was it it was a, a statement that stuck out to me. Uh, I, I mean, I definitely have thoughts and the entire time, you know, I, I think I reread this chapter about three times. Every time it came out, I just kept thinking about what little tidbits of information could potentially allude to particular scenario. And I honestly couldn't come up with any of them. The only one that like really comes to mind was like the seams daughter and the relationship between Desem and Hood. But I, outside of that, I got nothing. I think this is definitely between the two of us. It would be a Rafa moment. <laughs> I'm assuming eventually I am just going to trust the process that eventually yeah. it will be revealed in due time. But I can't think of anything specific or like hard cut evidence that would like dictate who it is. I definitely don't think that hood is hood in my canon anymore but what or who he is i have no idea yeah i didn't feel like i had any clues either but i i feel like i thought more on the other side of things so it's kind of alluded to and it was one of my points but so who is who is gethal i mean is he something or someone else besides gothos's brother and whatever a herald is that's kind of where my head was stuck at i take it you're not going to answer that name yeah, I, I, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I mean, my I did have some thoughts on this because I was thinking I I was thinking along the same lines of you guys. I was like, there's like literally no information here. Like, what can we even? So I just started thinking of, of like hypotheticals. And the only thought I had is it's more just like I as well felt like it changed who I think Hood could possibly be then. I think it like brought him down into a more realistic realm of thinking like you can I feel like it showed now like maybe there's some like flaws in who he picks and stuff like that and like that he's not 
like as all like as like i always felt like he had um he was like omnipotent is that the right word like he was kind of an all-knowing god of death or something but i feel like this moment showed like he maybe isn't like because he had to yank out his herald and be like all right that didn't work you're gone now <laughs> like i'm gonna have to go get a new guy but that was the only thought i had because i was like there's there wasn't much there except like i don't know just add like an ominous detail to him or something but yeah there there really wasn't any like you both said there wasn't any hints there so i i guess i kind of just i'm not even really that worried about it right now because like you said justin i'm sure when the time comes we'll know what we're supposed to know so i'll just i guess for now i'm fine waiting yeah the big question that i have about this really short section is the fact that like how how does is this like a voluntary thing that gethel is doing like okay well this just fuck it this isn't even worth it you know i'm getting sword cut in the lips and now i don't look that great but who cares because vanity you know isn't my curse or my burden to bear or whatever whatever he's talking about there is that him just like resignating or is that like oh i've failed hood so i'm kicked out you know like what are what are the events that prelude gethel and his interaction with barakalian that's kind of like where i'm hung up on is like how 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 exactly is gethel known that he's done with his service to hood is this hood's decision or is this gethel's decision I mean, I think it was a Hood's decision personally, just by like the reaction of everything and his kind of just like kind of just like storming away in a sense of just like, all right, I'm out of here. Then I'm just go do something else. Like, I feel like he's just kind of hopping around, just trying to make power plays or just be doing something because um, we see a bit later kind of like where he's been at in terms of the course of world events. So he's not exactly like a minor character and by the stretch of imagination in world history. So I think it's just more, he's like, all right, so this didn't work out and I'm going to move on because he doesn't want me anymore because I didn't exactly do what he wanted. But I think it was Hood's decision, in my opinion here, to kind of get rid of him. So you think it I was guess I... one of those things Hood is telling Gethel that like, if you don't get Fenner's gray swords to basically embody me, then you're out. So I'll jump in here with a small thought. Um, I do also think that if it was Hood's decision, it's uh, it's a little bit more than just that he failed to get the Grey Swords. It's also the fact that he took Brucalion's insult, offered to fight him, and then when the Talani showed up, still didn't like disengage. He was prepared to like go to war in that chamber with all three Talani Mass, and I don't think Hood really wants to uh, yeah take them on either. Like he was too hot headed for what Hood needed. Uh, that's a good point. But I also feel like, like Hood, if there's anybody in the world that he should want the most, it should be the Talani Mass because they have essentially escaped death. You know what I mean? Like I would, that would be like my number one goal if I was the god of death. Like, hey, you took an entire culture and you made them unobtainable to me. Like I will find a way to get you. That's me. I'm, you know, what do I know? I'm just a lowly little god. <laughs> I guess I, I feel maybe a little different. I feel like it was more Githal's decision to leave. I don't Maybe it's just my way of thinking, but you know, if Hood said, okay, you got to go get these guys, he has to assume that there's a chance he doesn't succeed. So, I mean, if he doesn't succeed, are you really just going to boot him? Maybe he would. I don't know. So I, I feel like, okay, well, Githal didn't succeed. So he's like, you know what? I'm tired of this bullshit. 
I'm dubbed. How much of an importance does that place on obtaining the gray swords for Hood's service, though? Are you asking me? I'm uh, just a general thought as you're talking, but yeah, I don't know. I guess it's not like explicitly written as to like what really occurred. I'm sure that more insight may happen. I will wait for that moment, but you know, it's just like a little pin in this particular chapter in the book where I'm like, I'm going to remember that as much as I can. <laughs> um, I, I was just like kind of skimming section two of the chapter. And I think it does answer some of that. I must have well. missed it when I was, well, then you might have to, uh, you might have to point that out to us. Oh, not I've a... got... gotcha. Yeah, you're right. Um, I guess I've got two more thoughts here. One that I wrote down and one that I didn't, but, uh, you know, it's Githal is talking or thinking about the, you know, these mountains of bones. And I just thought, man, there's all these bones here and no bone phone. Like what gives? You could strap one together, maybe. I don't know. The bone phone. It's rather important. Githal is not uh, a MacGyver type, I guess. No, apparently not. He doesn't seem like the kind of person. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would be fixing things. I feel like he'd be more like, <laughs> I'm just going to borrow this and you may get it back. <laughs> I was thinking similar thoughts. So that's great. Uh, my, my other thought here, and, and Nate, I guess, I don't know how much you'd be able to speak to it, but. It talks about Amtos Falak uh, and that it's dying. I I feel like I assume that must be related to the Jaghut being hunted down. Because we know there's not many of them left, right? I assume somehow that is tied hand in hand. Uh, the strength of the Warren must relate to the, the number of Jaghut that are left or around. I would say that's a good assumption. To be quite honest, I don't know exactly why Erickson threw that detail in here, that it's dying. No, um, so it may not necessarily even be anything super also, important. Yeah, I also don't know exactly why he says it's dying, but I mean, I, I don't know. But like, it's, I, isn't isn't the Warren detached from the people in a sense? Like, it isn't the Warren where they build off their cultural identity or draw their power? So, like, couldn't it be probably an outside influence besides the Jagood dying? I wonder. Like what was mentioned, in, I think, in the last chapter of Trake mentions um, destroying a Warren in. Uh, the first empire so there can be outside influences that affect warrens as well and i mean ah, who was it the rules well mentioned like the poisoning of the warrens from the oh i, I never remember how to say their name crippled guy i i would say that's probably the explanation then yeah gotcha well that was all that i had for that first section yeah it was I'm not so far in this book. I'm not used to very short sections <laughs> to, uh, to start things off. Um, so it's kind of a nice change of pace. So I guess if you guys are ready to move on, I'd I'd be ready to move on as well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Did Matt? Did you want to read, or you cool if I go, or you can go this time? I can read another one. Okay. I mean, I feel like some of the other ones are not as short as this one. So I either or. I guess I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well. Again, no but, pressure. If you want to, great. If not, no okay. worries. The Jag Hut, with amusement, had seen that the crippled god had fashioned a small tent around his place of chaining. Gethal halted before the entrance and said out loud that he would not crawl and to lower the shroud. The tent shimmered and the crippled god was revealed. A brazier lifted smoke between them. A mangled hand reached out to fan the smoke into the hood-shadowed face. He said that the Jaghut's sudden lust for vengeance was felt, and the temper of the Jaghut endangered Hood's meticulous plans. 
It was this that disappointed the Lord of Death. His herald must be obedient and possess no mortal desires or ambitions. The crippled god said that this was not a worthy employer, especially for one such as Gethel. Gethel glanced around, not even acknowledging what was said, and stated that he felt heat beneath his feet. He says that they chained him to Burn's flesh and bone, and the crippled god has poisoned Burn. The crippled god said that he did and left a festering thorn in her side, one that would eventually kill her, and then the world would die. He tells Gethel that these chains must be broken. Gethel laughed and said that all worlds die. He shall not prove to be the weak link, as he was there for the chaining. The creature hissed and said that he was already the weak link, thinking that Gethal could earn Hood's trust. And what a failure that turned out to be. It was not the first failure when his brother Gothos called upon him. Gethal interrupted him, saying, Enough. And who really is the vulnerable one here? The creature said that they both were, and raised his hands, and lacquered wooden cards appeared, their painted faces facing Gethel. The crippled god told him to behold the house of chains. The jaggod asked him what he had done. The crippled god responded and said that he was no longer an outsider, and the position of herald was vacant. Gethel grunted and said that it was more that more than just the herald. The crippled god said that these were the early days, and he wondered who would earn the right to be king of his house. Unlike Hood, he welcomes ambition and welcomes independent thought. Even acts of violence, or vengeance, even acts of vengeance. The Jaghut said that the deck would reject him, and his house of chains would be assailed. The crippled god said that this was a given, but they both know that the, ent the entity of the deck is not some entity, and that the maker is dust. His explanation of the house of shadow being newly resurrection resurrected he tells gethel that he needs him and his flaws none among the house of chains will be whole in flesh or spirit he tells the jaghut to look upon the crippled god as his house will reflect what he sees he tells the jaghut to gaze upon the world the nightmare and pain that is the mortal realm he tells gethel that very soon his followers shall be a legion he asks if gethel doubts that the Jaghut was silent for a long time, and then he growled. He told the crippled god his house has found a new herald. And what was it that he would have him do? As you pointed out, we do get our answer as to why why Gethel is no longer in, in Hood's service. Sometimes I think of these sections as like very singular instead of a combined effort to form a chapter <laughs> like, when i'm reading section one and talking about it my mind is around just the events in section one and sometimes i forget to like oh right the bigger was... picture right yeah exactly yeah. the hard See, part about overthinking fucking everything i i'm the reverse i just forget what things happened where so then i just jumble up the entire chronological order and start talking about the ending and confusing it with the beginning. So, I mean, I, it's not too bad, at least, to at least think of and remember your sections. That's fair. Uh, but, you know, I guess there's really no wrong way to do it. You know, yeah. you start at the beginning and talk till the end or go to the end and backtrack. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. It's true. What I loved, just the crippled God and how he frames this whole conversation and the whole time I'm thinking, oh, it's lost a herald, you know, <laughs> um, and just like the amount of convincing that the crippled God is doing is just like I myself was convinced as a reader. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to fucking leave hood 
right now. This sucks. <laughs> so wait, so so are you saying I was right, Justin? You are right. Fuck yeah, that like hardly ever happens <laughs> in these books. <laughs> no, we didn't bet a pie on it, so I'm good. No, no. Oh, I wish we could bet pies on our podcast, but I would win every single one. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, why don't we? And then you said that, and I was like, oh, yeah, no, you've read the book. <laughs> yeah. If you ever had a theory that you were dead set on and I accepted the bet, you would know that you were getting a pie in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, what you got to do, cruel. man, you got to trick him. When you say, you want to take a bet, and he's like, no, that means you're right. Oh, there you go. Or I'll just cross my fingers and be like, it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. I had my fingers crossed. <laughs> there you go. That was, that's good. The next thought I had was around this conversation about Gethel already being the weak link. A weak link to the ploy of keeping or chaining the crippled god, but the gods of this world, right? Like, I think this is what the crippled god is getting at, is that he is the weak link in... The crippled god being chained by the other ascendants and i'm still i'm still interested and wonder if this like first failure has something to do on an unrelated note like icarium as if gethel is gethos or gathos or gothos's brother then that would mean gethel is icarium's uncle right yep so i'm wondering if that has anything to do with like icarium's story as far as like the first failure and obviously Gethel doesn't want to hear it, so which is why he, he interrupts it. But it's very convenient for the writer to not even explain that because I'm sure that is all due time. Yeah, I just I, I find it interesting that Gethel is the first weak link. I don't um, really have anything to say. Fair enough. I think I think my main thing is um, what did you guys think of the crippled god having some cards of the dick of dragons and calling it the house of chains which is the title of book four i know justin was excited about that and i i just i reread this chapter today a little bit at my lunch at work and then before we were recording so i did not read your notes justin so I, at the second time i reread it i was like oh shit like these got to be the cards for monog but i do have some i do have a thought but i would like to let you talk first Okay. So we talked about the cards being Manug, the House of Chains, cards of the Deck of Dragons with blatant faults, right? Like going back to chapter two in the recruitment of poor old Manug and his testicular cancer balls. Um, <laughs> it was just interested, and I'm wondering if the fourth book will then be like the consequences of this house coming into existence. Like, I'm assuming that this is why the Azath have a need for the master of the deck, which could potentially thwart their crippled god. If I'm to understand the whole Azath and the holds and the houses and, and things like that. It's it's just it's interesting from like a gaming or like a cards standpoint, right? If you were to take poker, the the game of poker, and then all of a sudden introduce a new variable that basically kind of like destroys and fucks up the entire game <laughs> you know that's kind of like my headcanon around it. it it's just really cool so i'm wondering if like the fourth book kind of going along with the whole tavor felice and hepaboric storyline from dead house gates um we kind of get introduced to you know this new house and 
some of the consequences and you know the assailing that Gethel is talking about that you know hey they will they will never accept this so you might be able to make it true people are going to fight you for it what i found interesting was and i don't remember if it was in this section or if it was later but they talk about how everybody who will fill a role will like not be uh complete in like spirit or flesh however it was worded i can't remember exactly so justin i'm throwing it out here right now i have a prediction pie time who will be the king we already have a pie bet well you don't want to throw in another (laughs) one i took on two okay calor is going to be the king of the house of chains that's good i'm not going to take that bet um because i somewhat agree with you that's cool Uh, that's that's my prediction, though. I mean, is there anybody who could be any less complete in flesh other than like a Talanimus than Calor? I feel like <laughs> he's the epitome of of faults, right? Like you think of faults, like Calor immediately comes to your mind. I don't know why I didn't think of that all the way in chapter two when Monike and the crippled god were talking. Uh, well, we didn't know cool. what the cards were going to be like used for, though. So, like, I mean, why, I mean, why it, would you have thought of it then? I mean, we did know what they were going to be used for. We just didn't know that it was going to be the House of Chains. We knew that there was some type of game at play, if I'm recalling that conversation correctly. But yeah, that's crazy. That is crazy. But, you know, on top of that, Crippled God and and Gatho talk about they both know that the entity of the deck is not, you know, the maker of it is dust, right? Yeah. And he gives the example of house of shadow right and i have a theory that they essentially took over the tisti Edur warren um, and renamed it the house of shadow so i think that what is happening here is the crippled god has found a way in to play the game in this realm thus the house of cards but on top of that he knows there's no authoritative force to say no you can't come in because the maker is dust and I'm wondering, so because Cruel or K. Rule being cursed into not being remembered is a consequence of the Warrens and the houses, as since he's been forgotten, he can no longer control what he's been made. Because in the chapter, chapter six, was it chapter seven where uh, Lady Envy meets up with him in Cal? Yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you. And he kind of gives her this like vision he basically says like i am the two halves of the heart the power is the blood that throws that flows through my veins and arteries so i kind of get hit get the sense that he's like the head honcho you know he's the number one of the elder gods type of thing um whether that's right or not i don't care but i think it's an interesting (laughs) and it helps me out here yeah i'm not gonna spoil anything but going along with that like the crippled god thinking that there's no one that can like oppose him i would say that maybe that's the reason why peron being the master of the deck is so important and why that's coming into play i didn't even think about that but yeah that makes a ton of sense like what i like you guys are talking like i didn't even think along those lines at all so you guys bringing that up it reminds me of the azath houses in uh book two where they just see all these different like cards and stuff like laid out and so it's like i feel like the deck being ever changing and like just constantly evolving and constantly like having new things arise and old things go away 
that he's just forcing himself into this of like, all right, I got my imperfect cards. I'm going to start building up my house in this game. So I now have my Herald and things like that. And that's why in chapter seven, I think Gruel was like, hey, we need you need to keep um, talk the younger safe because he is very much a prime target. Because, I mean, we've seen inside his head and we know like he very much feels like a broken person in a lot of aspects. Like he's lost an eye. So physically he's broken, but at the same time mentally, like he kind of like he's like kind of like the double the two edged sword of that, like physically, mentally, everything like he has his flaws. And so you think the cripple gods can be like, hey, this guy's a looking kind of nice. He looks like he'll fit nicely into my house, you know? And so I think that's the cripple God is just starting this piece together everything. So I, I, I think your Calor idea is not too bad, especially because we see a bit later, a lot of the back at the camp for everyone, they're starting to give the side eye to Calor and being like, all right, if he even so much t like twitches a muscle the wrong way, he's out of here. You got Akarium, not Akarium, what's his name? Anmander Rake being like, hey, we're going to unleash all of our power on him, like if need be. So I think uh, you're not wrong in thinking that. He is, I don't know, I like him, but I definitely don't trust him. So I I feel like I could see it. So we'll see. Well, I feel like based on the events that happen in this chapter and events that happened on in the last chapter, I think that what the crippled god is doing is he's targeting the gods of war, right? Like he's targeting Fenner and he's targeting Treach. And so from what I understand about chapter seven is that talk is essentially treach reborn or soul shifted or whatever the case may be. So if cruel is a sense is essentially trying to be preemptive so that treach's soul is on their side and not the crippled gods. Same with Fenner, although Fenner is like hiding. Nate, is it fun hearing all this speculation where you know the answers? It's really fun, but it's it's also not fun because I feel like all I could say is those are good thoughts and Raffo. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the hard part about being singled out as the one who has read the entire. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm enjoying this. I get to bounce all these fun ideas off. Here's some other crazy ideas because most of the time I'll say my ideas, and it's like that's he's like, I like that. I love your theories, Raffo. We'll see what happens. And I'm like, ah, I don't get a, we don't get a play off of this as much, but. Nate sounds like he does a very good job of letting you down easy. Oh, he does. <laughs> That's okay. We've had many of those in, in the Malazan conversations we've had, so it's all well, good. I think I think that's the funny thing is that Matt really Matt doesn't really want to know. He just wants mm -hmm. to ask the question so that he knows that an answer is coming later. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm trying that's I'm fair. trying to play the game of like if he doesn't answer, then I know at least there's something coming down the road whether it's in book four next chapter or book 10 or something. But then the hard part is you got to remember it all that time later too. I know. And my terrible note-taking has not helped me in that. Cause Nate will reference things I've said before. And I'm like, I, I said that <laughs> <laughs> it helps like, that I hear it twice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely helps. There was a comment that I had on this, uh, this, this episode because I was editing the previous one, chapter seven, after I got home from work. So there's something in there and I'm like, oh, that kind of refers to this chapter. I'm going to go jot that down. Boop, 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 boop. So there you go. I'm loving these conversations. This is great. The last thing that I had uh, was when Getho told the crippled God his house had found a new herald. In my mind, I had it 
that hood pulled him from the meeting with you know what never mind i answered that question we can delete that got it um I didn't oh you, you actually did delete it all right yeah no hood hood yeah hood he was in hood's domain and then he opened his own warren and then the fissure came i remember that when i reread it but when i was summarizing because i usually what i do and it's kind of funny how much like video game strategy comes to my <laughs> mind like anytime i play a video game i will go through it and then i will go back and like meticulously get all of the things and then once i've done that i can figure out how to get the good stuff really early in the game and then i'll go back and play it a third time get all the good shit for the harder stuff and i kind of do that with summarizing too like i'll read it i understand it i get the premise i have the bigger picture of the chapter and then i'll go through and i'll summarize it but i'm only summarizing half of it so i really only get half of the detail so once I'm done summarizing it, then I'll go back and read read it, all of the sections. I'm weird. <laughs> all right. We love you anyways. I try. Uh, you guys ready to move on? Well, I mean, I just had the one thought, like at the very end, I think it's interesting that Gethal, like the cripple god makes such a convincing argument that there's just like that moment of silence. And then he like very reluctantly agrees, like, fine, I'll be your herald. Because he's like, he doesn't see a way out of it, I feel like. So kind he just like joins in. Lose lose situation. Yeah. I think that could also go back. Um, I think at some point in chapter seven, after Gethel is yanked back into Hood's War and the Talanim I say something like, Yeah, Gethel is a slippery bitch. We've been chasing him forever and he'll do anything to avoid <laughs> us, even even serve another god. And so now that he's not Hood's herald, I think maybe serving the crippled god also gives him some of that protection that he wants. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Interesting. I mean, if I was a Jaghut, I would be one, really angry, and two, hesitant, uh, and three, very slippery to try to avoid. You know, I'm scared shitless, right? Like, I'm going to do everything that I can to avoid being annihilated. Yeah. But then also, Jaghut are very, I mean, peaceful is not the right word, but they're, you know, they're reclusive. It's not really in his nature to be combative. But yeah, yeah. that was a great I section. I don't have any more thoughts. All right. Uh, well, I can take this one here. Murillo said, y'all gonna make me lose my mind, even as he threw his bones, which bounded, rolled, and eventually stopped. Krupp said it was the Lord's push as he gathered the bones and tossed them himself. He threw a winning toss and garnered the riches into his lap. Quick Ben said he had seen every possible way of cheating, the best and the worst, and yet whatever Krupp was doing had evaded his eyes. Krupp was aghast at the suggestion of cheating and wondered what poor saps would witness the cosmic sympathy on this night of all nights. Murillo asked what the hell cosmic sympathy was, and Call said it was another word for cheating and told Quick Ben to get his bed in as he was in a hurry to lose more of his hard-earned cash. Murillo said it was the table. Somehow it skewed everything, but somehow Krupp had cracked its pattern. He told Krupp not even to deny it. Krupp said he denies all things that are deniable, but he could assure that there was no pattern because the principal appointed to that role had vanished, but their leaving was only an illusion. Quick Ben cut him off and said Darkheart where it matters most and skull in the corner. Krupp said it was a bold wager. Quick Ben snorted and said not once ever had he seen one of those. He made his toss and everything lined up perfectly. Krupp said now he had seen it and his pockets now overflow. Call asked what the point of this was. Krupp wins every throw. A good sheet loses every now and again. 
Krupp said this only proved his innocence. This is madness and is obviously beyond his control. Quick Ben asked how he did it. Krupp dried his forehead and said there were warrens abound, licking the air with flame, and asked Quick Ben for mercy. Quick Ben looked to where Whiskey Jack sat, apart from the others. He said there was something there, he swore, but he was slippery and he couldn't quite pin it down. Whiskey Jack told him to give it up. He wouldn't catch him. Quick Ben turned to Krupp and said he was not what he seems. Call interrupted him, interrupted him and said he is exactly what he seems. A giant, slimy, greasy eel. Look at the, look at his sweaty brow. Look at him squirm. That's Krupp. Every bit of him. Krupp said he was taken aback by the scrutiny and he crumbled before the unwanted attention. They watched him wring out his rag and were surprised at the oily water that was squeezed out of it. Krupp said he was thirsty and asked if there was wine left in the jug. Also, why had Corlat arrived at the entrance to the tent in the middle of the night? Corlat entered the tent and told Whiskey Jack that her master requested his presence. Whiskey Jack said he accepted the invitation. Quickman told Krupp he would figure him out. Krupp said he was simple and there was no trickery about him. Simplicity is Krupp's mistress to his wife of truth. A happy threesome. Krupp was still blabbering as Whiskey Jack, Whiskey Jack left the tent with Corlat and said he was surprised her lord was still around. He hadn't been seen for days. She said he would remain in their company for some time, though he didn't have the patience for meetings. Crone generally kept him informed. Whiskey Jack asked what the need what need there was for him. She told him that was for Animander to reveal. The night of the dark's tent was no different from any other, no guard, and only a single lantern. Outside the flap, Corlat said her escort was done and that he may enter. Rake was sitting with two goblets of wine and told Whiskey Jack to make himself comfortable. Rake filled a cup and gave it to him, saying, With the right perspective, even a mortal life can seem a long one. Fulfilling. And what he finds himself thinking about now is pure happenstance. Men and women walking parallel paths, lives brushing close and changed by their brief contact. Whiskey Jack said he didn't find change particularly threatening. Rake said he usually would agree with that statement, but there is tension among the command. He was sure Whiskey Jack was already aware of it. Whiskey Jack only nodded. Rake said there was, there were long-standing ambitions that were now straining, old rivalries and new ones. The situation has an effect of separating each and every one of them from one another. Though if they abide, and the dude always abides, the calm return of instinct returns whispering of hope. Rake's eyes quickly made contact with Whiskey Jack. Whiskey Jack asked if this was all about hope. Rake told him he listens to his instincts. When two lives brush close, no matter how briefly, it lets him know who is trustworthy. Take Gano's Paran, for example. They met originally not far from here, being used as Open's tool and moments from death in, in a hound of shadow's jaw. He knew he was as good as dead, and if he lived or died, made no difference to Rake. And yet, Whiskey Jack finished his sentence saying he liked him. Rake said that was accurate. They sat in silence for a few minutes before Whiskey Jack said he imagined Quick Ben had him curious. Rake said he was. Whiskey Jack said he first met him in seven cities in the holy desert Raraku. It was a long story. Rake smiled and said it would be worth it. Whiskey Jack continued saying Adafon Delat was a middling wizard working for the seven cities protectors during a rebellion that began in Aaron. Quick Ben and 11 other cadre mages made up the unit. His unit's own mages were more than a match for them. He names off Bellardin, Nightchill, Tashren, Acarones, 
Tessor Mal Tessor Maldonis and Stumpy. They were a formidable group who were doing the good Lord Emperor's work. The city Quickben and his crew were taking refuge in was breached. There was a slaughter in the streets. Everyone was taken by bloodlust. The Seedim took out the Holy Protector, Protector as his unit, called the First Sword, worked their way through the enemy ranks. The Holy Protectors, seeing their master killed, fled into the desert. They were ordered to track them down, and their guide was a local who was only recently recruited into the Claw. Now you know why I was so excited to talk with you about Chapter 8. I guess I wasn't sure which part of it you were excited for. Uh, so this and then leading into the next section as well. Okay. I kind of thought maybe it was just all of it. All of it's good, but specifically... Uh, I mean, <laughs> this is the best part right here. This was your favorite map? This oh. part? Well, I mean the next section as well, but the whole Whiskey Jack raid sure. and stuff. Because, I mean... It's, it was pretty cool. It's Whiskey Jack and Animanda Rake talking about Quick Ben, like... What's a better combination? I mean, come on. He's, this was awesome. Yeah, I guess I'll just kind of start here. Justin was thinking that, you know, this table that's skewed in Krupp's favor uh, is the one with Paran's face painted underneath it. I guess they were bringing that with on the march towards Capistan, correct? Or at least part of the way. So I, th I think I agree with Justin's thoughts on that. Yeah, they were bringing the table with them on the march so Quick Ben could study it more. And I would not put it past Quick Ben to uh, play dice on a table that he knew was enchanted <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> Quick Quick Ben is super arrogant. And uh, yeah, so I would not I would not put it past him that they're playing on that same table. I guess I don't know that I've gotten the sense yet that he's arrogant or I haven't picked up on it. The next section, you don't get the sense of that? I mean, you you see him like in book one, you barely know anything about him and he's messing with the Warren of Chaos and then Shadow Throne. Like he's playing games with gods for fun, it seems like. That's yeah, true. <laughs> and in, in the next section, he also thinks about like how conniving and deceitful and slippery the crippled god is and he grins and says a worthy opponent mm -hmm. yep. i guess i just didn't think of it as arrogance then i don't know well and arrogance I'm, might not be the right word he's he's very self-confident we can say that yeah. sure um i don't know how much y'all talked about the table but um i know that in some of the previous chapters particularly chapter five when the bridge burners are kind of talking about the table and what they've discovered, a lot of them were like, oh, well, it's Quick Ben and Fiddler's table. Like they run, they pretty much run this table. So to your point, Quick Ben knows that it's enchanted and knows that he probably should have his way with it, right? It was uh, Fiddler and Hedge that used to run uh, the card games. Quick Ben definitely has been around those games a lot. Gotcha. I did agree with your assessment that uh, that is, must be the table with Brand's face on it. But Krupp talking about the principal appointed to this role. I guess I didn't know who he was talking about. Just I don't know if you had thoughts or Matt. Um, I was kind of, I, I wasn't sure Yeah, who that was about. Which one? Uh, where Krupp says he denies, you know, everything that he can deny. There's no pattern to things uh, yet because the principal appointed to that role has vanished but it's only an illusion so i don't know who the hell he was talking about i think i think what he's he's referring to cheating the principle of cheating appointed a like points to it may appear as if he's cheating but no longer because that's that's purely an illusion because he's not krupp is so hard to summarize sometimes just because of the way that he, uh, yes you know the third person mixed with this like 
almost like vocabulary, like vocabulary, like intricacy. So it, he's what he's actually talking about here. I'm assuming that he's going back to like, to, again, kind of elaborating in a very nonsensical type way that he's not cheating. I, gotcha. I think I, I think I actually know what he's talking about, because if we're if we're taking that this table is the one with Peron's face on it and he's using that. He says, uh, no pattern has formed by way of sincerest assurance for the principal in question has fled from his appointed role. And Peron is trying to deny his role as the master of the deck. Said flight, not, mm. not but an illusion, of course, though the enforced delay and self-recognition may well have direst consequences. That makes sense, yeah. So you think Krupp is trying to think that he's the master of the deck? No, I think he's talking about Peron here. He's referring oh. to Peron as like the reason that he's trying to deny that he can't form a pattern on this table because Peron's image underneath it doesn't have any power yet because Peron is trying to deny his role as master of the deck. Got that it. makes sense. That makes a lot more sense than my cheating thing. I like that. And I could very well be wrong because I don't know for sure, but... Great. It means there's no answer. I mean, in the... <laughs> in the, uh, the few times that you've read this particular sentence, have you swayed your thoughts on this or is this something that you just kind of like slowly like build upon i don't think i've ever paid attention to that sentence before and i've never put together that it might be the table with peron's face on it so that just popped into my head like right now gotcha i went back and just read that sentence uh to see if i could see anything with it yeah krupp just has this way of like eluding you as a reader and it's kind of fascinating from a reader's perspective because like you get it, but like in a very vague sense of what he's trying to talk about or describe, you know, and how many like hidden meanings are there really? Yeah. it. I mean, he, he blows my mind as a character and like, I absolutely love him as a character, but he's frustrating. Yeah, definitely. And then lots of times it's like, is he actually like being genuine? Is he faking you out? Is he making you think that he's faking you out while he's actually being genuine? Is he triple faking you out? Because here I, I genuinely have no idea if Krupp is cheating or if he literally believes that the universe is making him win. Or he's just blaming it on the universe making him win. Yep. Right. I feel like the universe would favor Krupp though. It'd just be like, they they just, I feel like the universe just roots for him and just like, he is our champion of messing with people and just like making them <laughs> confused. So do you think it's like Crone who just finds him very entertaining? Uh, it's just a cruel trick that the universe is yeah. like, I like this guy. He's fucking dumb, but he's funny. <laughs> Did I, um, Nate, you've, you've, you've uh, listened to the part where my theory on Krupp, right? Um what which theory was it i've i've just barely start i'm like 20 minutes into your chapter five episodes so anything beyond that i haven't of gardens oh of uh memories of ice oh yeah it was something was this in gardens up, yeah i brought up in either gardens or deadhouse gates towards the end but i think and matt uh you may not know but i think that in order for krupp to go into like his dream like state stasis is that he has to get so lethargically full that he passes out in order to do that which is why he eats so much why he's always stuffing his face like the food is his source of magic i do remember this now yes yeah no 
the food is a way for him to like invoke comatose. I, it's not bad. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I haven't thought too much into Krupp except like I'm like I'm always hesitant every time I think about. It. I'm like I don't want to think about him too hard because I don't know if he's like like that big a deal or if he's like just kind of the fun side guy just to mess with people. But like he's been in kind of key dreams and weird things, so I'm always like he's such a weird enigma to me. Mm, right, <clears throat> like being in a true a threesome with truth and uh, faith. <laughs> Yep. And then there's other mistress dreams and whatever the hell else. Yeah. Was. They kind of sound like stripper names, don't they? <laughs> the universal uh, was, it would be like the universe's strip club that he goes to. That's why he enters the dream state. Right. Yes. <laughs> On a full tummy. Uh, yeah. What did you all think of uh, Rake and Whiskey Jack's conversation? I love it so much. It's just, it's two dudes being bros and respecting exactly. each other. Mm hmm. Like, I felt like that was my thought as I was just like, I feel like at the beginning, they're just like, I like this guy. I can't quite put my finger on it. Like, how do we like, what should we talk about? You know, like, how do we start this? Like, they're just both kind of like feeling like the con like how they should kind of continue, you know, like, is this like a true political, like as commander and your commander, like, what do we talk about? Or is this like a kind of just like get to know each other meeting or something? Yeah, it's like the a feeling out process, right? Like, they're just kind of like. It's like they're the only two guys at a bar or something. Yeah, for sure. It was, I guess it was uh, nice to see the camaraderie, you know, kind of going off of what you guys are all saying. I mean, these guys have met previously before, but not really in a, in a spot where they can just sit down and bro out, you know? So yeah, there's always been so much going on. They haven't really had a chance to just like hang out. And uh, I think kind of what brings this on is whiskey Jack when he stood up for silver Fox and you know bitch slapped calor stood in front of silver fox and wasn't gonna let calor do anything i think that really opened up rake's eyes to like respecting whiskey jack because you get the feeling this super old ascendant dude doesn't doesn't usually not lower himself but he doesn't usually like talk with humans because they just go by in the blink of an eye for him i mean yeah and he makes mention of that too uh, again it might have been in the next section he kind of gets a little snippy with chrome when Crone mentions mentions that, so that, I wonder if there's if we'll learn more about that later. Well, I'm wondering if it it's stemming from I recall a conversation with Baruch and Rake in the Gardens of the Moon, where Rake is like really trying to explain the Tisiande and how they don't really even have like really a will to live anymore. Like they don't even bury their dead because they're just so indifferent to everything. And I'm wondering if like Rake behind the scenes. Is having this like realization that you know hey maybe maybe i should slow this down and like stop and smell the roses and change my mindset and yes mortals lives do fly by in a, in a blink of an eye because i'm fucking twenty thousand years old and counting and maybe he, this is just his attempt at turning a new leaf yeah well i mean i think as well it's like he like if i'm remembering correctly like Rake, when he first showed up, like he saw Silver Fox and was kind of like, what do we have here? And like, kind of was like in more of an aggressive position and Whiskey Jack just kind of stands up and is like, I will stand here and stop you if I can. So I think just that as well of him just being like, like Whiskey Jack, like is like not terribly frightened by much. I feel like, like even if he is, he puts on the show of like, like, this is who I am. I'm just going to stand up for what I feel is right and just put myself in the way to protect others. 
So I think Rake kind of like respects that he's like, this isn't a, like, this isn't just an average soldier commander. Who's just out there kind of like bloodthirsty fighting. Like this is a guy who's really there for the betterment of whatever cause he's a part of. And I think Rake, like you mentioned that, like he's kind of indifferent to so many things. So seeing that probably like awakens something in him of like, Oh yeah, I, I miss that. I remember that. So, but nicely said, uh, my <clears throat> moving on, I think my last thought here, I typed wrong unless somehow I was just right on this, but, uh, Stumpy, I don't think we've met before. And then also Tessor Malandis. I don't think we've had that name before. Have we? No, I will say while you were reading the summary, I looked both of those names up uh, in the Malazan wiki. Right here is the only mention we have ever gotten in any Malazan books of either of those characters. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. So there's nothing nothing more to learn there. No, that's all we know about them is that they were Malazan military mages. Mm. Oh, good. I wonder what that's like to be able to look up the wiki when you run into an issue. <laughs> I've wondered that before. I, I, I did it on my first read too and got spoiled for something in the final book like 20 pages before I read it. Oh, oh that's ouch. Frustrating. But that's the only thing I did get spoiled. Yeah, I think the only thing uh, I, I would say that was major was uh, Duiker got spoiled his death. Yeah, for me. Or, well, yeah. I don't think he's like completely dead. He's got to be coming back somehow. I mean, based on those like gremlin type dudes, like, yeah, I. I think the intent was to get Coltane's soul, but they got Duikers instead. Right. So I really hope that we see some of that in this book. Not necessarily that particular part, but just some of the things that are like happening parallel with Deadhouse Gates and some of the events with like the Trigaly Trade Guild. It'd be nice to have them discuss that particular scenario. I don't know that we're going to get it, Justin. I don't think so. Well, I mean, we might get a little of the, the trade guild, but I don't think we're really going to see much of anything that's already going on in Raraku. I mean, why would we? We already saw it. I think it just more or less to get the other side of the story. Like the perspective, yeah. Yeah. Kind of fill in those gaps without really filling in those gaps, <laughs> which is really something that like Erickson does really well, is that he can play around with the same premise and make you see the bigger picture without showing you the same thing twice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we'll have to read and find out, Justin. Right. I was going to say, I will stay silent. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't have anything else for that particular section. So um, yeah, no, I think, wh- wh- Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, whoever wants to take this next one, I think uh, probably we're in a good spot for that. I mean, I can give it, I can read it since I haven't read one yet. All right. <laughs> Let <laughs> uh, her rip. All right. We got, about two and a half pages here, so hope no one falls asleep. But <laughs> <laughs> grab your power. no, but uh, all right. So starts out. The story of Quick Ben was then told by Whiskey Jack. Whiskey Jack watched Kalam twist in his saddle, sweat glistening on his brow. Kalam, the guide, stated that they were all together, and he thought that they would have split, thus forcing them to do the same. He tells the commander that the trail leads out into the heart of Raraku. Whiskey Jack asked about how far ahead. Glom responded and said that it would be about half a day on foot. The commander stared out into the ochre haze of the desert. Seventy soldiers rode at his back. A collection of marines, sappers, engineers, infantry, and cavalry. Three years of sieges, set battles, and pursuits for the most of them. They were what this Dasim Ultor judge could be spared, even sacrificed if necessary. 
Cutting Whiskey Jack off from his thoughts, Kalam explained that Roraku is a holy desert, a place of power. The commander cut him off and told him to lead on. The troop rode at a trot with brief intervals of walking over the barren plain. The first corpse was discovered early in the afternoon. A withered figure, head tilted skywards, and eye sockets hollowed out. Kalam dismounted examined the body for a while. He turned to Whiskey Jack and said that it was Keb Arla. Um, Kalam was about to explain that he found something odd when Whiskey Jack cut him off, saying that apart from appearing to have died hundreds of years ago, what did Kalam find odd about the body? A soldier chuckled from um, somewhere behind the commander. Whiskey Jack commanded the funny man to come forward. A rider joined them. A thin young man joined him, wearing an ornate helmet. Whiskey Jack told him to remove the helmet as a soldier would cook his brains out wearing that and to lose the broken fiddle while he was at it. The soldier explained how he was able to keep the helmet cool, and the commander of the soldier had a brief conversation about the broken fiddle. Whiskey Jack told Fiddler to return to his position. Before Fiddler did, he told the commander that he didn't have a good feeling about all this. Whiskey Jack said that he wasn't alone in that feeling. Fiddler attempted to explain what was cut short with shouts for the commander. Hedge nudged his mount forward and explained that Fiddler's hunches haven't disappointed yet. He explains how Sergeant Nubber was told not to drink from a jug as there was a lizard in it and he choked to death. Whiskey Jack said enough and turned to Kalam and told him to lead on. Kalam nodded and climbed into his saddle. Eleven mages on foot without supplies fleeing across a lifeless desert. Late in the afternoon they came across another body, shriveled just like the last one. With the sun near to setting, they found the third one on the trail. Directly ahead were jagged cliffs, tinted red with the sunset. Kalam informed the commander that the trail of remaining wizards led towards them. The horses were getting exhausted and water was starting to become a concern. Whiskey Jack called for a halt and a camp was prepared. After the meal, Whiskey Jack joined Kalam at the fire. Kalam checked on the water inside the pot suspended over the flames. He explained to the commander that the herbs inside this tea will lessen the loss of water come tomorrow. He explained that he was lucky to have it as it was rare and getting rarer. Kalam explained some of the side effects of the tea when Whiskey Jack Whiskey Jack interjected that he knew and explained that he'd been on this continent long enough to learn a few things. Kalam explains that he's forgetting that fact as long as they all, as they all seem to be so young. Whiskey Jack says that they were just as young as Kalam. Kalam tells him that he's not seen as much in the world being some bodyguard, bodyguard to a holy Fala in Arin. Whiskey Jack questioned the word bodyguard said not to mince words as he was holy Fala's private assassin. Um, Kalam explains that his journey has begun but for Whiskey Jack and crew... What they've seen and what they've been through will have been all there in the commander's eyes. Whiskey Jack sat staying the man, the silence stretching. Kalam removed the pot and poured the two cups of tea and handed one to the commander. Said that they'll catch up with the mages tomorrow. Whiskey Jack agrees and says that they made great time. Must be within a few bells of catching up. They're using warrens and Kalam was shaking his head and explained that if they were using warrens, then all signs of their trail would have vanished. Whiskey Jack agrees but then asks why the footprints led on a broken... Kalam squinted and said he didn't know. Whiskey Jack finished the tea, dropping the cup, and left. Day after day, the pursuit taking them through battered ravines, gorges, and hills. More bodies discovered, desiccated figures that Kalam identified one after another. Renisha, a sorcerer of High Manus. Kuluger, a septim priest of Driss, the Worm of Autumn. Narkal, the warrior mage, sworn defender, and aspirant to the god's mortal sword. Olin, the Sultaken priestess of Soliel. And then deprivation took its toll on the hunters. Horses died or butchered than eaten. Had the mage's trail not led Kalam and the others to one hidden spring after another, they would all be dead. Setalad, cruel, a jag half-blood who had once driven Dasimal Tor back a dozen steps in a furious counterattack, his sword ablaze with the blessing of an unknown ascendant. 
Etra, mistress of the Rashan Warren, Birithera, mage of the Cirque Warren, Gelid, witch of the Tens Warren, Raraku had taken them all, but now one remained, his light footsteps, the only ones left behind. Up a steep rocky channel through an eroded fissure and out into the natural amphitheater, see it across, see a cross-legged on a boulder. The opposite side of the clearing sat the last mage. Kalam turned his horse around and explained that it was Adaphon, a mage of the Mayanus Warren. The assassin explains that the lot was never much, so he won't be able to muster much of a defense. Whiskey Jack said nothing, angled his mount past the assassin towards the mage. His voice carrying across the amphitheater, Delat said he had one question. Whiskey Jack responded with what? He asked who and Hood's name was he. Whiskey Jack asked if it mattered. Quick explains that no man was worth chasing across the entirety of the desert of Raraku. Whiskey Jack said that there were 11 others in the wizard's company. Delat shrugged and explained that he was the youngest and healthiest. He says that he could go no further as his body has finally given up. His dark eyes looked past Quickie Jack and he said, Your soldiers. Whiskey Jack, what of them? Delat says there are more and less, no longer what they once were. Raraku has burned the bridges of their past. It's all gone. They are yours, heart and soul. They are yours. Whiskey Jack responded by saying that more than the wizard realized. He called back and asked Fiddler and Hedge if they were ready. Two voices respond, saying that they were. Whiskey Jack saw the tension in the wizard's eyes as Fiddler and Hedge flanked Kalam with crossbows trained on the assassin. Whiskey Jack explained that the pair had played an extraordinary game. Fiddler had sniffed out the secret communications and would have ended this a week sooner. However, the commander had grown curious. Eleven mages. Once the first revealed their ancient knowledge to you, knowledge she was unable to use, it was a matter of bargaining. What choice did the others possess? Death by Raraku or by my hand? Do their souls cling to you, screaming to escape their prison? He asked the wizards to what end this game was for him and Kalam. The illusion of wariness fled from Delot and he smiled. He explains that the clamor has subsided. Even the ghost of a life is better than Hood's embrace. They've achieved a balance. Whiskey Jack responded that the wizard now hosted powers unimagined. Delot agrees but said he has no desire to use them now. As far as the game they played, it was one of survival. He continues on to explain that thought Whiskey Jack and company wouldn't make it that Raraku would claim their souls. Because of what Whiskey Jack and his soldiers had become, he said that he and Kalam would join them if the commander would have them. Whiskey Jack said that the Emperor would take the mage from him. The lat said only if you tell the Emperor as far as Kalam and well the claw will be displeased. Smiling, he said that it was too bad for Surly. Whiskey Jack twisted in his saddle and studied the faces of the soldiers. Company called from the Empire's castoffs, now hardcore. Um, Whiskey Jack said to himself what had they made here. The first engagement as the bridge burners was the retaking of Danis Ban. What a name. A mage, an assassin, and 70 soldiers who swept into a rebel stronghold of 400 desert warriors and crushed them in a single night. Those are some names in there. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I decided to put them in. I just thought that they were cool. But Oh, they're cool. But yeah. I wasn't anticipating was... anybody but myself to read it. So I apologize. <laughs> oh, no, you're good. That was fun. I've never done a summary, so I now know it's like it's a lot more work than I want to do. <laughs> I thought maybe you had some help for a second, Nate, but maybe not. No, <laughs> no, Nate's uh, too kind and does all of it. You do all of the summaries. I do. Yeah. yeah. Mine, to be fair, I don't put in nearly as much effort as you guys do, and mine are significantly shorter. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't recall, Derek, how we decided to go this in depth uh, with the particular summaries. It just kind of evolved that way. Um, yeah, I guess I just I don't know. I mean, it just seems like the only way that made sense. I think for us, and yeah, now I can't really see doing it much of a different way. 
I don't I mean, know especially since how I would do it. A chapter at a time, it makes sense. But I mean, we'll do two or three chapters in one go. So we're a little more sum- like summarized or really summarized, like quick, short stuff. So just two different ways to go about it. Yeah. I think the problem for us is we just, we probably don't know what we could cut out. That's fair. I would always be curious once we're done with this epic quest to just come back, read the books again in a more straighter fashion and then just yeah. have an episode per book. The, yes. There's like, tons of people that have done that. They get four or five book tubers together and just have a two hour episode on the whole book. Right. What did you three, this is why I was so excited to do chapter eight with you guys. Uh, what did you three think of the uh, formation of the bridge burners? Uh, confused. Um, I understand that the, you know, Raraku had a hand in that, but I'm not exactly sure how it dissolves their past um, and made them loyal to Whiskey Jack, which I get is kind of the anathema to Surly slash Lucene's reign, right? Um, loyalty to the Emperor. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, that, I get that concept, but the intricate details of how it happened are eluding me. Like, I, I mean, I feel like this is like one perspective of many. Like, there was a lot of this journey that I feel like didn't, like, wasn't explained because it, it, like, he explained, like, oh, we could have ended this a week ago and just gone back. Like, we won't have to worry about this. So I think it's like, there may be more explanation down the road. I don't know. But I think it's just because it was such a long th- journey through a desert like tracking and just being together as like knowing you're the outcast, but like kind of going through that. And then your leader just being like, no, we're going to play this out. And then they kind of discover this weird secret plot. And then after that, going and destroying an entire stronghold on their own. I think that's probably what played a part into it. Like kind of giving them that morale and that confidence as a team being able to do that. But yeah, take, taking out a city being outnumbered like four and a half to one, you know, it's pretty oh, yeah. wild. I uh, I do also think that some of the intricate details don't get explained here because this Whiskey Jack's main point in telling the story to Rake is to explain who and what Quick Ben is. And so that's what gets a lot of the focus. And it just so happens that Quick Ben's story is very intricately linked to the bridge burners. And so that gets thrown in there as well. I'm assuming it's the start of more explanations to come that will slowly build on it. And I think that what we're supposed to take away is just that a change happened. Their paths were burned. Thus, the name, right? Yeah. But how exactly it happened, I mean, that's still elusive. I, uh, I'm not going to lie, though. It wasn't until I read through this whole thing again that like it really clicked for me. I was like, oh, this is the bridge burner bit i was like like i read it before and i was like okay that was cool yeah the bridge burners and then it was like this like clicked with me i was like oh no this was like the start of them like this is where it kind of came from and i feel like this is the beauty of summarizing and you know not a knock by any means but i get more when i summarize that is the most influential part of this podcast as daunting and as time consuming as some of these sections can be and the length and the amount of sections one has. Um, but it is really the most richful. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the first thing that I thought was cool uh, is just this Kevharla that was said to be more scholar than a mage, a delver into mysteries. 
And I feel like this kind of ties into Quick Ben's character a little bit, as in he is such a mysterious character. And it's not necessarily it's not necessarily her power, it's her knowledge. And I'm assuming that based on this section, that is part of Quick Ben. He's got this knowledge that really doesn't do him any good outside of maybe a couple of scenarios every once in a while. Yeah. I definitely like this section as soon as I saw like the like going back a little bit, the multiple when he's like a group of 12 wizards ran away into the desert. I was like, so this is, those are the other wizards that quick Ben holds. So I think, yeah, it's definitely like him absorbing all this. And over time, like all these souls into him, it's kind of formed into the one kind of like we, and I think some of that explanation and more of how it works is kind of being like observing silver Fox so much is like, like how she's started. Like we're seeing the start of it and like how it's kind of blending together and quick bends like the full effect um of the blend of like all these souls into one or like the effects of that many into one so i I definitely agree i think it's really cool to see like that at least one of the details of like all these i'm sure have contributed to different things we'll see of quick ben or that we've seen in the past right yeah like the uh the fenner the fenner mage that he absorbed that totally explains why he knows so much about the fenner cult or federal religion yeah. uh in the previous chapter the other thing that i thought was cool was fiddler and this whole shaved filings that when thrown into a fire still remain cool i wonder what exactly that's about and if it'll make an appearance again because i almost get like an ota Tarot vibe but not quite with the whole sand that you can throw in helmet and it stays cool no matter what i just thought it was like a weird like intricacy but it could very well be something like the bone phone where we don't ever see again. I I mean, I thought it was just more of a like a note to introduce Fiddler, like kind of this quirky fella. That was my thought. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love the detail of Whiskey Jack realizing, wait a second, the Holy Falad was wearing that. And Fiddler's like, yeah, Dasimultor decapitated the dude and his head flew right into my hands. Yeah. <laughs> so I kept it. He just took the head out and whoop. I guess I was under the assumption that I guess, you know, the, the sand could have already have been in there. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess I didn't really look at it from that perspective, but I thought it was just something that like he found or he ran across or, you know, yeah. Um, one of the other things that I thought was cool is like, we get an origin story for the broken fiddle, uh, yep. you know, and just that hedge, that motherfucker breaking it while trying to play it. It just, there's a nice little like added humor there. So I like I like that that part. Oh yeah. Can I say something completely unrelated? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I am an idiot. We've been talking for almost two hours, and I just plugged in my microphone. Oh well. <laughs> One of the other things that I thought was interesting, and I'm sure I'm a hundred percent wrong, but when Hedge is talking about Sergeant Nubber being killed by the des- dead lizard in his drink. I wasn't sure if this was like supposed to be some type of sarcasm or if these soldiers like really believe in Fiddler's hunches. So I don't know I th- what you all thought. I think they do just because like we see with the table and the whole deck, like they, you, they feel like they notice that Fiddler has like a, a sensitivity to it all. And so like I think Fiddler knows some things because I mean at the end of Dead House, like we see here, I have like this ragtag team of like 
the expendables of just like, yeah, these guys die, it's whatever. And you see kind of like a less like military maturity in some of these guys. But by the end of Dead House, you see Fiddler like, no, I'm going to go join the fight against the rebellion. And like you just see kind of like this new sense of intelligence. And so I think he genuinely does have something like a gift in a sense about like his feelings. And so I think these guys are like, I mean, soldiers are superstitious, I feel like. So I think these guys do have a genuine belief in this. I will say Fiddler does have some sort of sensitivity. Um, This is going way back, but in Gardens of the Moon, like chapter six or seven, right before the Hound of Shadow attacks, Fiddler stands up in his pacing and like has a, I have a bad feeling about this. Mm. He's the Han Solo of Malazan. So there's been multiple little it's been little times, but there's been multiple times throughout the books where he's felt like something was going to happen, and then something happens. I don't remember that, but that that's either. I remember that part, but I don't remember like the pacing. Yeah, See, this is why I'm excited to read the series again. Whenever the oh, it's insane! It's insane oh, how different the second time is. There have been so many times where Nate's like, "Did you catch this?" And I'm like, "You know, part of me is just thinking, I'll catch this the next time I read it through." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. When Kalam and Quick, or not Quick Ben, when Kalam and Whiskey Jack are are talking about the Warrens and the mages potentially using them, Whiskey Jack kind of like questions this, like, "Oh, well, if they are, then why do the footprints lead on unbroken?" and I feel like at this point is where Whiskey Jack is on to Kalam in some way, shape, or form. And this is kind of what I really enjoy about Whiskey Jack's parts is he's just so perceptive in nature. And he just kind of like picks up on things that don't seem right because he's he's logical, he's sensical, and something isn't adding up here. So he knows that something is up and potentially combining that with like Fiddler's hunches, able to figure out what they're trying to accomplish yeah quick ben and kalam rather another thing that i thought was interesting to me is that we're talking about like horses dying and they were butchered and eaten if the mages trail had not led kalam and the others to like one hidden spring to another they would all be dead now i'm thinking is that coincidence is that just the fact that these mages need water as well or is that plan to keep the pursuers alive i mean they're just because they're mages doesn't mean they don't need water right i mean i just I think they was... needed just as much that, i mean that's that's how i'm feeling about it but not to like trying to shit on your parade justin but like no no it's fine i just they're just they're just people they just use magic that's all like I, don't we kind of know like just about anybody can learn to use magic here in this world right yep I'm just saying I, that, that that's like, my thoughts I was on being it. tracked. I would not lead my pursuers to water. That's true. Yeah. Well, so you're just going to die of thirst instead? No, I would find a way to like lead them on a false trail. How are you? It's like walking through the snow, though. I mean, <laughs> you're either going to waste so much time, you're just going to die of thirst. But I mean, or, or how are you going to how are you going to do it? I, I, I mean, maybe like, there's a way to do it. I don't know. I'm not going to try, but that's what I would do. If I were, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to go get lost in the desert with me. No, Justin? I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> I don't want to like get people to pursue me that want to kill me or like apprehend me. Like I'm not that kind of guy. Hey, come out here. We'll take you across the salt flats. I was, gonna I was say, just going to say, don't you guys have a desert out, out there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, as uh, long as it's guided and safe 
and not having people pursue i'm all down i actually have never been out there but that's where multiple like land vehicle speed records have been broken because it's just miles and miles of nothing and so you can get up to 280 miles an hour or whatever the record is went out there once it's pretty cool the salt flats wasn't the nutty putty cave in utah i think so yeah i don't even know what the hell that is dude it's such don't it's so sad don't it's, i mean if yeah. you're really curious like there's videos about it on the the tube of views it's 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 a tragic story so unless you want yeah. your heart broken i'd say go for it i mean i am i am reading malazan yeah but this is like real life dude <laughs> this is this, I'm it's a little it different right than the chain of dogs basically some some cavers got stuck in there and died spelunkers oh Yep. Is this not the guy who had his arm pinned under a rock for a hundred and some hours? No, that's nah, someone that's... else that that happened in Zion National Park. Yeah, that's a different story. Uh, he got like stuck upside down in a in a cave that was like what thirteen inches wide or something like that. Was, yeah, he tried to crawl through the hole and got like stuck at the waist, and they couldn't cut him out. Right. So he ended up just dying upside down because his body. You know, take that in. <laughs> he had a wife. That's a... and uh. I think they had a newborn as well at the time or something. Yeah. He got no business going crawling through caves and tiny openings. But here's the thing. He was an experienced spelunker. Yeah. You know? Like, this was a famous cave, is from my understanding, like, to go, like, explore, so. Yeah, he thought he was in the part of the thing called, like, the birth canal or something like that. I mean, I guess if it's 13 inches, that just seems like a aptly named place for an adult <laughs> yeah but he wasn't really in the birth canal he was like in some uncharted part of it that he thought was the birth canal so yeah uh, uh no they're gonna be a hard no for me i'm not if i yeah, can't no, walk I, in it i'm not i'm not going <laughs> i'm uh i'm i'm incredibly claustrophobic so no thanks i've i mean i've been in a couple of caves out here and yeah i'm good i'd rather not that's something that's yeah if i gotta crawl then yeah i don't think so i mean timpanoas cave is pretty cool that one you can walk around but that i'd be fine with but like if i have to get on my like hands and knees and like crawl i'm no i'm good i'm out i'm out of there we've got one not far from us justin you ever been to the mystery cave down in rochester no i just outside rochester Mm -hmm. uh andy went was a tour guide there one of our friend we graduated high school with and uh he i did a tour with him and a bunch of other people and you go to this part of the cave and uh he had us all turn our flashlights off and he's like can anybody see anything he's like raise your hand if you can see anything or you know say something he's like you guys are all a bunch of liars because it's completely pitched you you can't see anything Hmm. but i mean you could walk you're not crawling around on your hands and knees it was just dark when you shut the lights off that was all well, um, on to was a nice tangent. Less, less <laughs> yeah. sad things. Yeah, less sad things. A mage transferring the souls of eleven other dead people into his body so that he can live in a desert. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah. Yep. One thing that I thought was cool, and I know that I don't really think this way anymore, but when I was first reading, I thought that you know, Delot was said to be a mage of the Minas Warren. Kalam kind of explains that the lot was never much, so he won't be able to much muster much of a defense. Like when they finally come across him, I'm kind of thinking, okay, Manas, the Warren of Illusion, right? And I'm like, oh, is it possible that Quick Ben illusioned them to see all the dead bodies? I don't think that anymore, but 
I just wanted to point out like that was kind of like my train of thought when I was first going through it. But it also reminds me of how Culp in Deadhouse Gates describes himself to be kind of like this lackluster mage, not very strong. So I kind of see some similarities there. And I thought it was cool to mention. Thought I would mention it, I guess. I mean, that's yeah. a. I, I was just going to say, I also think that Kalam is lying here. I mean, clearly he's lying when he says Delat was never much. But also we learned in Gardens of the Moon that Quick Ben was a high priest of Shadow at one point. Right. And so clearly he was more than just not much. But wouldn't wouldn't that have come later, though, because they hadn't ascended yet? So the, the Cult of Shadow existed before Shadow Throne and Cotillion ascended. Oh, and then it, he just probably... had, it just had no one on the throne so maybe he he probably left after they ascended i imagine because he's like nope i'm not dealing with you guys but doesn't the god of shadow throne recognize him in gardens of the moon yes he does recognize him um but also kelenved the emperor who is now shadow throne would also recognize quick ben oh that's fair um the other thing the other comment that i had uh and i think that we maybe talked about yeah we already talked about the the bridge burner thing um so i will move on so 11 mages once the first i already talked about that oh no i didn't 11 mages once that first revealed her ancient knowledge to you you know when they're talking about the souls inside of quick ben and this is why carnatus thought he was mistaken and thought that more mages could have helped conjure the orb in the previous chapter so i think it's cool because it kind of plays on both of his theories right so carnatus is like oh well it could totally be one dude, which is true, but it could also be other mages helped him conjure it, which could be true because there are 11 souls inside of him. Um, I just thought that was kind of cool. That was amazing. This is this has kind of become my role on the podcast is making tiny connections. Um, but I also think this connects to because uh, in Gardens of the Moon, when Quick Ben is preparing to shift Herlock's soul into the puppet, Tattersail was like, what the hell? No one's seen that in a thousand years. And yet here you have Quick Ben shifting souls into himself. So it makes <laughs> sense that he would be able to shift a soul into the puppet. Mm-hmm. I mean, seeing seeing this, though, like reading this, my whole thought the entire time, I was like, what what was Quick Ben's pitch of like, hey, guys, you want to survive? I got an idea. <laughs> like one by one, you know, like was it like it all at once? He kind of got all the souls and just like slowly left the bodies or, you know, was it like they go a while and then he takes a soul, they go a while, then he takes a soul, you know, like that was that was kind of my thinking because it's like, what what are these mages thinking? Like, because if they're not using the Warrens, then it must I feel like it must just be quick Ben going by himself like going from spot to spot leading them through because he and kalam are obviously working together so i was just thinking like maybe he's like trying to keep kalam alive going from thing to thing and then like just dropping bodies along the way to like leave it as the code to be like just double checking him but i don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that i I still feel like if it were me if i were quick ben i'm gonna i'm gonna guess like these people probably weren't willing participants in this so I would, if I were Quick Ben, I would take out the weakest one first. That makes me a little bit stronger and just kind of work your way up. Now, I don't know. Do you do this while these guys are sleeping or something? How do you how do you keep them from ganging up on you? I guess you got to make it look like an accident or they died naturally. You know, they got dehydrated or whatever. I don't know. But that's, that's what I would do. Oh, I almost kind of feel like Kalam 
and Quick Ben have this overall scheme and it involves Whiskey Jack and company like they see something in them because it seems like Kalam and Whiskey or Kalam and Quick Ben are essentially on the side of the rebellion back then, right? And they're willing to just switch sides in an instant. So I feel like there's a higher, a higher thinking, a, a, a prerogative, so to speak, an ulterior motive to these two guys. And this is potentially a way of testing Whiskey Jack and the Bridge Burners to see if they're worthy of that purpose. Yeah. And I think it all has to do with Lucene in some way, shape or form. Nate's Maybe. quiet. So I'll take yeah. that as a good thing. Um, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> He's been silent. Well, I don't know what I could say and what I can't say here. Which, I I mean, I think that plays into like when he's kind of explaining, you know, his, why basically Jack is asking what game. And he was just like, it's one of survival. And that's kind of what is making me think things. It's almost as if like they know that Lucene has plans to do what she's going to do. Sorry, someone was going to talk. I didn't mean to cut them off. I think I was going to... Oh, I was just going to say that clearly they are worthy because they slaughter 400 soldiers on their own, mm. like take them out in a single night. That I just, I could use a whole novella or a short story just on that. It would be kind of cool to see that. Also, I don't know if... I'm sure, Nate, you recall, but more so for Matt and Derek, but uh, G. Danisban, that's where Fiddler, Absalar, Crocus saved that like little girl from those soldiers in dead house gates when they're having the yeah. conversation around uh the um, ascension of kellenved and dancing she like ran under the oh, wagon yes. or whatever right yep yep and yeah. they all slaughtered them yep as they should have right um but yeah i mean th- those are all the thoughts that i had picked out in probably what i would imagine is the best section in this book or in this chapter excuse me i think the last section is probably a close second though so with that i'm cool to move on if y'all are yeah yeah i'm good to move on you want to take this one again nate sure the light had burned low in the tent but dawn was rising at the end of the whiskey jack story rake replied soul shifting rake had heard of shifting one soul into a vessel to prepare for it but to shift 11 souls 11 mages into an already occupied 12th he shook his head in disbelief he now understood why quick ben had asked him to stop probing him yet here whiskey jack is giving away his secret when he, rake didn't ask whiskey jack interrupted saying that to ask would have been presumptuous rake said that he understands him then Whiskey Jack replied that he trusts his instincts as well. Rake rose up from his chair, as did Whiskey Jack. He said he was impressed that he was ready to defend Silver Fox. Whiskey Jack said he was equally impressed when Rake had reined himself in. Rake continued on, talking about the mystery of the cherub. Whiskey Jack didn't understand, and Rake said he was thinking of his first meeting with Krupp. Whiskey Jack said he had no information on Krupp, and they would likely lose the fight in finding anything out about him. Rake agreed. Whiskey Jack said Quick Ben would leave in the morning. Rake said he would keep his distance uh, to not startle him. He held out his arm and they shook hands. Rake said it was a welcome evening. Whiskey Jack said he appreciated his patience. Rake said another night it would be his turn to spin tales as he had a few of his own. Whiskey Jack had no doubts about that. And as Whiskey Jack rose to leave, Rake spoke one last time, saying that Silver Fox has nothing to fear from him and he will instruct Kalor accordingly. Whiskey Jack thanked him and thought he had made a friend this night and he couldn't remember the last time that happened. Nice little short section. Um, I feel like it's it's merely transitional, but uh, yeah, 
there's definitely some things in here. Derek, I know you had one. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple, but uh, yeah, only one that I jotted down. But I wonder, you know, these Quick Ben's got these mages within them. So I wonder, like, is he almost like, does he hear voices or something? You know, like, are they all in there fighting for their piece of time to be heard? Uh, something like that. I don't know. Like Split? Or does that even, is that a movie? I haven't seen it. Yeah. Never mind that. I just kind of wonder, is he like schizophrenic in a sense or something like that? I, I mean, clearly he seems pretty with it, but I mean, I don't Maybe he's repressing it or holding it back somehow, but, or does he just, does, does he just simply have their magic and that's it? And the rest of them has gone. I don't know. I think it's just kind of a melting pot of personalities or maybe not personalities, but just knowledge, knowledge that these mages possessed and potentially um, their warrens as well. I mean, we, we do know that he has access to their warrens because he can use, he uses seven on the crippled God and thinks that he could have used more. Yeah. I just, I, I wonder like how much of that person's, I guess, maybe like soul for lack of a better term is within quick Ben. I think it's just one of those things where like he himself is partitioned into 12, into 12 different entities or souls but like there's one that is essentially dictating the others and he's just pulling from where he needs it to go. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like it's maybe something we probably won't get an answer to, but maybe we will. Um, I don't know. Nate's quiet again. Yeah. And <laughs> 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 so there's something there. All right. I love, it. I love it. One thing that I thought was really unusual is like Rake's random thought about Krupp uh, and especially the mask that he was wearing at the Fete. So I guess, is there any discernment from any of you surrounding what seems to be kind of like a random thought when that's not even where the conversation was about? Well, I feel like if an ancient uh, knight, son of darkness, with uh, a worn four sword and who can change into a dragon seems to have been part of a lot of world changing events is confused by Krupp, then maybe there's something to that. <laughs> that's my thought. Because if like if he's not picking up on some things, then I feel like maybe he's just like, is this guy just kind of just, you know, an oddball or is there like something really there? So I think that's probably what Rake is thinking or he knows something that or has picked up on something that no one else really has. And he's just trying to see if anyone else knows before he starts like making assumptions. But I don't know. That is really thought provoking. I, I, I don't know. That's weird. That is cool. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like you said, Krupp's just an enigma. I don't really know what to make of him most of the time. Other than I, sometimes I don't know if I enjoy his antics or if I'm annoyed by him, but I think sometimes it could go either way. I, I unapologetically love Krupp every single time he comes out. I makes me laugh more than anyone else in this book. I don't, I don't like dislike reading his parts or anything like that, but it's just kind of like I get a little tired of reading your riddles, you know, like, <laughs> just be more, be more straightforward. <laughs> I will say I've enjoyed Krupp more and more each time I read the series. So I remember, I remember like the first time we saw Krupp in Gardens of the Moon. I was like, Nate's like, so what'd you think of him? And I was like, the weirdo? Like, I don't know. I thought he was just kind of like odd. And Nate's like, he's, he's one of my favorites. I'm like, I will keep an eye on him then. <laughs> and since then, I've like noticed a little more and more. Like, not that I've understood him by any means, but like just his character, like, how he plays into some of these situations. I'm like, okay, I see why I like him. This is pretty entertaining. And wasn't the first introduction to Krupp, like his first dreamscape? Yeah, walking down the road in his dream to the end where he sees the other versions of himself. And then he walks outside and he's 
he's hung humility from a tree. Yep. 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 So yeah. yeah, it was very an abstract introduction to Sarah Krupp. Yeah. And I, I definitely like kind of going on Krupp a little more, more of a side note, but I remember we'd met me and Nate talked about it a little bit, but just like looking back on the, the war council, I guess, and the, where everyone's meeting in Krupp's there, like trying to bargain for Drujitstan. I just think it was so entertaining to have him there, like this big serious meeting. You got the true leaders and like negotiators for Duru just stand there, just like trying to make their their pitch. And here's Krupp spilling like the most straight out like thought and idea of like, well, this is how you can do it. This makes the most sense. And they all just kind of sit there like, yeah, no, you're right. That's actually that's a really smart idea. <laughs> so yeah, and then he says something like, "Krupp will wait while you come to the inevitable conclusion." <laughs> right. Yeah, he's definitely got his moments, his antics. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if y'all have anything else for that uh, very quick section, but I'm ready if you Not guys. Really? Uh, I have one last thought. You know, Rick says he doesn't, or Silver Fox doesn't have anything to worry about from him, and he'll tell basically Caller's going to stay in line. And I don't think that. I think I don't think it's going to work. I think Caller's going to be a bastard and kill Silver Fox. Still think that. And I think that's our pie, right? Is that Silver Fox? It is. Okay. It is. And I don't I don't know if I ever if I ask like if I want to amend it, if I'm more certain that Silver Fox is gonna die, or if I just stick to it and that Calor is gonna be the one to do it. I mean the less specific you get, the better your chances. <laughs> I know. That yeah. I feel pretty confident she's gonna die. Alright. Well I might be taking a pie again, but who knows? <laughs> No. I, I know who's thought, taking though. the pie. You do? Uh, well, I bet. I bet I, you do. I know. I know who's <laughs> taking the pie. I bet it's one of us that you're talking to, and it's, it's clearly it's not. one of two people. Fifty <laughs> percent shot. I'm gonna take a pie. I can li- I'm those gonna, are the best odds I'm gonna have. I can take that. I'm gonna be so pissed. I will be fucking pissed. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, section. I'm good to go on here. Did any of you all want to read? I'm cool with reading it. Cool. Standing at the entrance, Rake watched the commander limp away. Crone approached from behind and asked her commander if that was why. Asked her master if that was wise. He asked her what she meant. She explained that there was a price for making nice among short-lived mortals, as Rake could attest to his own tragic memories. Rake called her a hag and told her to watch her words. Crone asked if he denied the truth in her words. Rake responded and said that one could appreciate the value in brevity. Crone cocked her head and said that she doubts that he will elaborate and leave her wondering. She calls him a pig. Rake tells her that he can smell a carrion on the wind and tells her to go find it. He commands it, actually, and once her belly is full, he asks her to send Kalor to him. With a snarl, the great raven stepped outside and left. Rake calls for Corlot. She appears and asks what he needs of her. Rake informs Corlot that he'll be leaving for a short time, as he feels the need for Solana's comfort. Corlot said that the dragon would welcome his return. Rake said that he'd be gone for a short time and to extend her protection to Silver Fox. Corlot said that she was pleased by this. Rake also said to have unseen eyes on Kalor as well, and if he's to fuck up, to call him upon or to call upon him instantly. But do not hesitate to call down the full force of the Tistiandi. She questions the full force and wonders if it would actually call for that, as the full force hasn't been called down in a long time. Rake admits that he's not sure, but why risk it? Corlot said that she would prepare for the joining of Warrens. 
Rake sees that this troubles her. Corlot admits that it does, as there are 1,100 Tistiande. At the chaining, there were a mere 40 of them, yet they were able to destroy the crippled god's realm. Nonetheless, they risked destroying this one too. Rake's eyes veiled and said that she could approach the situation with their strength, and he anticipates that Kalar won't fuck around and find out, but nonetheless, just a precaution. She said that she understood, and Rake told her that that was all. Um, again, another little shorty, and I only have a few things here, but when Crone cocks her head and said that she doubts that he will elaborate and leave her wondering, I'm not, she's not the only one wondering about this. Is it because he finally gets his answer on Quick Ben, or so like he knows how to approach it, like whether that's good or bad intentions? Like, what is it that Rake took away from his conversation with Whiskey Jack that he is not going to reveal to Crone? I don't, um, I don't have an answer for I, you. <laughs> yeah, I don't have I don't have an answer on that. Uh, but the line above it, where Rake says that you can find great value in brevity, for some reason, some reason being that I, until about twenty twenty, was a huge Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, and finding value in brevity brought to mind the line from a uh, Vision at the end of Age of Ultron, where he says something like, uh, "Something isn't beautiful because it lasts." Like, something can be beautiful and stay around for a very short time. I don't remember that line, but mm. See, do you think that's it's a good line. Of, you think it's kind of playing on what I mentioned earlier about Rake maybe having a turning point to, uh, with his attitude, so to speak? Yeah, I think just deciding to live in the moment and appreciate what is there while it's there. Yeah. Gotcha. Because, I mean, however long he's been alive and just like the state of his kind and now seeing like, you know, they chain the, the cripple God and now they're starting to see, like, I don't know if they've noticed specifically yet, but like they're starting to catch wind of like a big calamity coming and the guy that, you know, took 40 of them and a bunch of others to pin him down, maybe come in on the rise. Like, I'm sure he's like starting to reflect more on the past and realize, Hey, maybe I should just kind of be, in the moment like it's it's a time of maybe him to reflect and so that may be play part into it as well and i'm sure he probably does not want to discuss that with crone which yeah i find her to be a very obnoxious character even though we don't get a lot of screen time with her she really i don't know like i love and hate her at the same time well, i don't i don't think he wants to give her too much in focus i mean i mean don't you think she just go tell brood whatever he says right or patronize him in some way shape or form you know, fair. She kind of, I don't know if you guys have seen The Princess Bride, but she kind of reminds me of uh, the old lady that's like the wife of the Miracle Max at the go see in the movie. Just this super old, cranky woman that has like a scratchy voice and yells at everybody. Huh. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but based on your description, I can I can see it. I don't know that I've ever seen all of it. I, I know I've seen bits and pieces. It, it might be my favorite movie. I mean, mine is Dumb and Dumber. I can't really talk. So, <laughs> I've never seen that one. Oh, a cinematic classic. Yes. Yeah. I think I, I try to watch that one, and I thought it was too dumb at one point. So I was <laughs> like, I can't, I can't take this right now. This is like, I need to be in the mood for this. <laughs> it's so like clever. It very, very highbrow humor for sure. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that in the uh, like yeah. the opening sequence? All of the the roles for the film are spelled wrong. Like director is spelled with a K, 
producers got like an extra O in it. Uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's funny, like, and it's just that small shit that you pick up on, and you're like, huh, that's clever. So yeah, no, I I, I definitely need to watch it again. It's on my list, but I I definitely don't think I was in the mood because I was like, all right, this is not this is not my wheelhouse right now. <laughs> yeah, when I was in college. All my friends and I, we would just quote it. It was Anchorman or something, you know. The other the the second thing that I had was like this whole prepare for the joining of Warrens stuff. I'm not really too sure what to make of that. I'm assuming it has to do with Karald Galane and Starvalad Galane. What exactly that means, I don't know. Do you think it's like, uh, and Nate, maybe you can answer this, but it's like, uh, damn it, and I'm forgetting the term, but like in Wheel of Time, where the eyes to die, they like link up. Mm. That that's a good way to think of it. Is it's them joining their power together for gotcha. one thing. So it's it's literally at face value the way that it's said. Yeah, got it. Okay, fair enough. So they're really gonna fuck your shit up if they do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, forty of them were able to destroy a god's realm, and so Corlett says, "Well, all eleven hundred of us could like fuck up the entire continent," which is wild to think about. So it's like the nuclear option then. Time is probably like 10. Yeah. But is, I guess, at the Tissiande, like, uh, I went lesser is not the right term, but as far as like the soul thing and the ability to use Warrens, a lesser version of what Quick Ben can do, like, can they access both Warrens? Like, I know the Starvalad Demolane is like the, the Warren of the Dragons, uh, from which I understand the Tissiande kind of commandeered it. So, I mean, all I can say on that is Raffo. Cool. All right. <laughs> I know it has something to do with High House Dark. Something. Something. All right. Well, I'll move on. Uh, yeah, but kind of tying up the, the last of this section here was your comment about the 1100 and the nuclear option, as, as Derek was was saying. But I, I just thought it was a nice little like tidbit of information and... I kind of love how we get some clarity on the events that happened with the crippled God. And I get a really bigger picture of why he's pissed. Right. And to like top it off, he's likely the only one left from his realm, which I would imagine is why he's so hell bent on vengeance. Right. Like he's literally the only one left in his universe. Yeah. And then they chained him to the earth and left him there. Right. Yes. Which was fucking dumb. I don't know why the hell. I guess we'll read and find out on that one, too. Yep. <laughs> I don't know why he's so mad, though. And after all that, it seems like he should just be like, fine, I'll relax and do nothing then, you know? Yeah, I mean, like he could just take it easy. A, it hasn't even been 200,000 years. It's only been a little over 100K. He should be over it by now. Bro, right. what is he complaining about? Yeah, just get over whiner. it. Yeah. It's just a whiner. Oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I could read this unless anybody else is dying to to jump in and take it here. Go for it. Go for it. All right. I won't badger you anymore. The Maibi dreamed again of the tundra. As she walked, she had no pain. As she breathed the cold air, there was no rattle deep in her chest. She realized she was back to where her daughter was born. She realized it was the Talan Warren. So it wasn't so much a place as it was a time. A time when the world was young. And so was, was she. She looked at her body and thought she was young, as she should be. But this was no gift. It was torture. She knew it was a dream and knew it would fade when she awoke. She looked to the ground and saw footsteps, thinking that they were, that they were blood and flesh eye mess. 
She wondered if it was Pran Cole and his companions that walked her dream or someone else. She awoke from the dream, old and frail again. She whispered, spirits of the rivi, take me now. I beg you, end an end to this life, please. Her cry to the spirits went unanswered. She sat up and dressed herself. As she walked out into the early morning, the rivi camp was awakening around her. She heard the ritual greeting of the dawn. Uruth met in all Barku Sen Nataral. Aritan, Uruth met now. The Maibi did not sing alongside her kin. She had no joy in her heart, no desire to live another day. A voice spoke to her, saying he had just the thing for her. It was a small wooden box. The Maibi hesitated and forced a smile, saying she was reluctant to accept the gift based on past experience. He said faith is another mistress whose loving touch he appreciated, and within the modest container is a treasure he offers to her. She thanked him, but said she has no use for treasures. Krupp opened the box, and she saw what appeared to be flint blades. But as her eyes adjusted, she realized they resembled flint blades, but were made of copper. Krupp said they were not tools, but objects to be worn on the body and would ease the aches of her body. Copper was the first gift of the gods. She wiped the tears from her face and thanked Krupp and said they could not guard against old age. Krupp said his story was not over and that they knew who each of the ornaments belonged to, dug up from below Daruzhistan. Jagan, Seren, Srental, Manik, who Krupp felt an affinity towards since he was also a runt and a trickster, and Iruth. The Maivi was at a loss for words, thinking this was impossible, but Krupp told her it was indeed true. The Rivi spirits were once flesh and mortal. He expected to see her wearing the adornments later in the morning. In her days and nights to come, she should hold to the faith. The Maibi could say nothing as Krupp held out the box and she took it. She wondered how he knew this morning of all she would be struggling. As he walked away, he stopped and turned, saying, Faith has a twin. Her name is Dreams. She wondered who she crossed in her dreams that night. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> So in, in our little break here, I, I guess I don't know if you guys reread this chapter at all, but I did not. So mm -hmm. I, I still remember this part pretty well. Um, it always helps when you read what you wrote, I think. But uh, yeah, we'll see what I can get from it. Yeah, I, uh, where... I, I have distinct memories of reading this scene for the first time. Uh, this scene here with Krupp and the Maib is the first time in my first read through that I was like, you know, maybe I can get behind Krupp, like fully behind him. I because my first time reading this, this kind of came out of nowhere for Krupp. The he would give such a tender and thoughtful gift. But rereading the series, I think it makes total sense for his character, and I love this scene a lot. Oh wow, that's really cool to hear. It does seem he always kind of seems a little selfish and just full of self-interest, from what I can remember of reading him so far and so this definitely seemed like the opposite of that right like it doesn't seem like there's any strings attached to this gift at least not that i can see yet but uh, maybe there are yeah he seems to be genuine here and my guess is that he was the person inside of the Mybe's dream like somehow it wasn't actually her dream but his because we do know that events take place within corrupt dreams i don't know if that's like his thing or just like a a talent that he possesses it really hasn't been elaborated on by any sort of uh you know 
lack of a better term. So I'm wondering if this was potentially just him luring into what he wanted to depict with her. Yeah, that, that was one of my thoughts here, but I definitely, I think Krupp was in her dream, you know, and he's kind of alluding to it towards the end with the, you know, his, his twin mistresses. I think that was his way of saying, yeah, that was me. And maybe she's questioning it a little bit, but isn't quite so sure. How many mistresses does he have? Too many to keep track of. That's the perfect number. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> and, I don't anytime know he, anytime he needs a new metaphor to describe another attribute <laughs> that he has, it's a new mistress. <laughs> hey, what I always say, or what rather my partner always says, when you got one problem, you don't go get another. But remember, he is married to truth. Well, right. And uh, a threesome with uh honesty and integrity or something like that right yep uh, i don't have anything else to say <laughs> <laughs> i i mean i i'm a i'm a softy for the mime storyline it's incredibly sad and uh quite quite the uh interesting take on like motherhood and erickson has stated before that what what his intention with the mime was is to take postpartum depression and make it real like make it a physical representation. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I, I can see that. I mean, yeah, I definitely don't feel like there's a happy ending to her story. And if for some reason there, you know, if there did turn out to be this 180, you know, and she got a happily ever after, it would almost just feel like a slap to the face. Yeah, but we're all secretly hoping that she gets one um, because you just can't help but feel empathy for this character. I don't know. I feel like out of all of the characters so far, like in just, up to this point, including the first and second book, the Mivy is the one that's pulling on my heartstrings the most. More than Felicen? Yes. I think that Felicen, it was just, it was like a, it was always like a back and forth, you know, with her. Like, I feel like there would be some redemption. Uh, I also, you know, enjoyed kind of the character who that she ended up turning out to be in her own mind, so to speak. But her journey there was really rocky. Whereas the Mybe, it's pretty consistent, you know, like I just, I always just feel bad for her because I think as people, as humans, you know, we, we all think of mortality at one point or another and being able to empathize with what this character is going through in our own thoughts and our own observations is really what, again, pulls those heartstrings. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I empathize too. And I, I mean, I feel like, you know, police and she hit rock bottom, but it almost seems like the Miami lives there, you know, where police and just had a couple of visits. Um, right. It's like the, it's like the scene in Batman where Bane's like, you adopted the darkness or whatever, but I was born in the darkness. Mm-hmm. Except <laughs> yeah. this is what depression maybe is just like, no, I just live here. This is my <laughs> now, home. Now see, Matt, you got that wrong. It's Anamander Rake who was born in darkness. Okay. Ah, that's true. That's true. I'm getting my <laughs> franchises mixed up. My character. Sorry, guys. Hey, you know you're you're fine because you're right here with us. So I mean, we, we know I, as well as much as each other, except for you, uh, Nate. Nate. But, <laughs> that was a that was a total joke. I that was a bad joke. No, no, it was a good one though. Yeah, it was good. It's almost like if this world that we're talking about were to be superheroized, right? Really, what, what, a dragon is just a bigger bat, right? So <laughs> he'd be Dragon Man. There you go. No, I think Kalong would be Batman. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, true. He does have those particular set of skills. Not to bring another franchise into it, but so who would Quick Ben be? Is he like Inspector Gadget? Doctor Strange? <laughs> Doctor Ooh, Strange. Doctor Strange. Ooh, yeah, I, yeah, I could see that. It who feels would, like that could work. Who would the Flash be? Hmm. Beneath. Crickets, Justin. Okay. Sorry. All right. All good. I was I was trying to think of a super fast character, but. Right. Like, I, I feel like it would be like someone who travels Warren's like nobody's business that just kind oh, of pops Lock. up out of nowhere. There we go. Hairlock. They're like, yeah. The Flash. Or the caravan, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. Hmm. Yeah, I can't, can't think of anyone else. Right. Well, Anyways, I, don't, I don't have much more to say on <laughs> that was this. A, that was a nice tangent. Um, <laughs> a couple of my thoughts here, you know, where it says it might be Wolf from the Dream. It just made me think of Wheel of Time. Oh. Yeah. And the. Ayul waking from their dream, which was actually just dying. So, yeah, it just made me, the line just it drew me back to it. That's all. The Maybe, when she didn't sing, um, she had no joy in her heart, no desire to live another day. I'm like, geez, that's just, yeah. that's harsh. Um, that's that's tough. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard for me to remember that she's like 20 instead of a bitter old woman. Do you imagine <laughs> her as 20 or do you imagine her as old and so? I, I imagine her as a super old, decrepit woman, which that's what she looks like. But because that's the image that's described about her, I forget that she's like literally 20 to 25. Hmm. Have you guys seen um, the video of Ricky Gervais interviewing this like 100 year old woman in Britain? Uh-uh. <laughs> this lady is the Maybe. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, because... I mean, it's like, so this lady, she's like, like a hundred years old. She might've been older than that. And she's like, and he's like, oh, you know, how does it feel to be, you know, this old? And she's like, it fucking sucks. I wish I was dead. Um, every day's the same, <laughs> you know, like my family's all dead, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, you got to meet the queen. Like, yeah, she's a, you know, I won't say the word. Um <laughs> <laughs> something like that that might not be it for verbatim but uh yeah if, I, I would assume if you google like ricky gervais interviews old woman you probably find it it is good for a laugh but at the same time you're like yeah man and that's that sentence sums up that woman perfectly this woman had no desire to live another day in this video and she made that pretty apparent <laughs> what i would like to know is this like tomb or you know whatever it is that they uncovered below the city of Jerugistan. i really hope that gets explored more i feel like that was just kind of thrown in there and while erickson usually has a purpose for things i hope it's not that small chance that there isn't a purpose and that it's just with that you know like i feel like this is bigger than the bone phone i can understand why the bone phone doesn't make another appearance because like eh, whatever but for whatever reason like you know I, maybe it's just my affinity for like lost cities and you know uncovering things like i, I hope i hope this come makes a, a comeback or this gets explained or she wants to see it for herself or something you know I am in the same boat. Anytime I read anything in the series that's like ancient history, I'm like, all right, where's the side story on this then? Like, where's just the huge compendium of like all these ancient civilizations and stuff? I just feel like some of these things will never be explored and it makes me sad. But I'm like, I kind of think the same things. I'm like, 
you just told me there's a whole ancient city buried beneath this other really amazing city with all this ancient stuff and you're just kind of brushing past it like here's a gift it was from an ancient city let's move on well i feel like it's not too spoilery is that something that uh makes an appearance nate um uh let's see what you will learn a lot more about the history of Darugistan and that area of Ginnabacus. Okay. All right. Yes. So through proximity, so to speak, you will recollect the scene when uncovering those. Yes, I would say so. Like recollecting soul taken into Ivers to the correct ritual, that type of thing. Um, I'm surprised nobody is laughing, but that's fine. Uh, that was a knock at Derek and I, which I told you, yeah. Nate, but, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. See, no. I, I think that's, that one's an understandable mistake because there's these, you've heard about these two giant rituals and it's Talani mass. And then the shape shifting one, I feel like it's pretty easy to get them mixed up. Yeah, and there's more of an emphasis on the Talan one, you know, so. Yeah, that's like the ritual like yeah the ritual yeah. of the first empire i totally fucking missed <laughs> did you get that i don't Matt? think we ever would i don't think we ever would have caught that if it wasn't explained for us yeah yon's a god i'm just gonna say that <laughs> but yeah anyway uh, we can move on to your your next segment i'm done making fun of us <laughs> you're good <laughs> my my last point because we already talked about the other two with the dreams and stuff but copper was the first gift of the gods um I, I mean it feels like that's important to me but i guess we'll see if that comes up somewhere down the line well i mean we've had little instances of why this would be important right i mean talk talks about his dislike for sorcery all the time and it's because what humans figured out how to make shit metals stone kind of that like natural progression of history you know you go from the stone age to the bronze age right so you're essentially replacing tools and things with a more longer lasting material more shapeable material etc more moldable so i think that's kind of why it would be considered a gift from the gods like the first Maybe not even really the first gift, but just a gift in general. Yeah, it uh, it kind of reminds... Have you guys seen the video, The History of the Entire World, I guess, on YouTube? No. No. It's it's one of my all-time favorite YouTube videos. It's like a 21-minute video that animated that this guy spent like two years on that goes Holy over shit. like the history of the world, and he just jumps around, and it's super quick, and there's jingles and stuff, and... Um, but one of the things in there is like tired of using dumb shitty copper use tin and then later <laughs> in the video he has something something like tin not good enough for you anymore you can try iron now <laughs> YouTube the history of the world I guess the history of the world I guess I by guess. Bill Wirtz alright I will uh, probably watch that while I'm lying in bed trying to go to sleep <laughs> hey there you go you know gotta get that blue light in before I go to bed <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on that, but that that's what that's what I'm interpreting that as to mean. Yeah, I didn't have anything else. No. No, I think I'm good. All right. Well then if you're all good, I'm cool to move on. Yeah. I'll take this one because I made it lengthier than it needed to be, but it's whatever. All right. Eighty-five leagues to the northeast, Picker leaned back against the grassy slope, squinting as she watched the last of the corals dwindle westward. Ancy was heard complaining about the coral ride, 
After some back and forth between the two, Antsy said that it was the captain's fault anyhow. Pigger comes to Paran's defense and said that it wasn't fair to place blame on the captain, and that kind of talk could backfire. The plan was cooked up by none other than Whiskey Jack and Dujek, and if he felt like cursing someone, then to curse them. Antsy said there wasn't a way in hell he would curse those two. Picker told him to then shut the fuck up and stop his damn grumbling. Antsy tells her that for the way she's answered her superior, that she would have the role of duffer, today and likely tomorrow if he wanted. Picker says that she sure does hate short men with big mustaches. Antsy replies and tells her that since she's getting personal, she can also clean the pots and pans after dinner. And he had a real complicated meal in mind. Hair stuffed with figs. Picker comically says that he's going to make them eat spindle shirt with figs. Antsy did not react well to this as he explained himself and what he had meant by hair. The journey had been grueling with few and all too short stops for rest, nor were the Black Moranth much for company. They were virtually silent, aloof, and grim. Commander Twist and his quarrel was the only left that remained after being transported to the foot of the Bargast range. The quarrels had taken them high, into the frigid air, flying through the night. Picker ached in every muscle. She closed her eyes and listened to the sounds of her fellow bridge burners preparing camp and food supplies. At her side, Ancy sat muttering complaints under his breath. Heavy boots could be heard approaching and stopped directly in front of her. She opened one eye and Captain Paran was there. However, his attention was on Ancy. He informed that sergeant he informed the sergeant that Quick Ben had been delayed. He tells Ancy that he and his squad will provide an escort when Quick Ben arrives so that the mage can catch up. Ancy says that they'll wait for the snake and then asks how long they should wait for the mage before trying to catch up. Paran says that Spindle assures the captain that Quick Ben will arrive sometime today. Ancy asked what they should do in the event that Quick Ben doesn't show up. Paran said that he will show. Ancy again asked the question. Paran groans and then marched off. Ancy turned towards Picker and asked her what they should do if Quick Ben doesn't show. Picker calls him an idiot. Ancy gets defensive and tells her it's a legitimate question. Corporal Picker tells him that if Quick Ben doesn't show, then that likely means something has gone horribly wrong, and they should all hightail it to somewhere far from the action. Ancy's red face paled and asked what has gone wrong, and why wouldn't he make it? Picker remarks that nothing has gone wrong, as sure as the sun was baking his brain. Ancy snarled and barked out orders to a couple of bridge burners that they were standing around watching them. He tells Hedge to get Spindle. Hedge points to Spindle on a nearby hill, examining an upside-down tree. Ancy makes a comment about the upside-down tree, to which Picker tells him to go check it out. Sergeant tells her that there is no point and tells Hedge to get Spindle and to do it double time. With some rebuttal, Hedge jogs up, up the hill. But when Ancy is no longer looking, he slows down to a steady walk. Ancy then asked where Blend was. Blend was right next to the sergeant and replied that she was right next to him. Next to him. This startled Ancy, and he asked where she had been skulking around at. Picker calls Blend a liar, and she saw Blend striding up from the corner of her eye. Blend shrugged and said she overheard an interesting conversation between Paran and Trotz. Blend explains that Trotz had once been high-ranking amongst his tribe, thus the tattoos. He is to make contact with the white-faced Bargast with the aim of enlisting their help and allegiance against the Panian Domen. Picker snorted as if that wasn't obvious enough because of where they were dropped off. Blend continues on and explains that there's a catch, though. 
and that trots will likely make contact, and doing so without getting them all killed. However, it's likely that trots might end up fighting in a challenge or two. If he wins, then they all live. And if he dies, well, Ancy's mouth was hanging down, and Picker groaned. Ancy spins towards Picker and tells her to find the Bargast and tell him to start sharpening his weapons. Picker said, oh, really? Ancy replied that they had to do something. A new voice was heard responding to Ancy's question. Ancy turned again and greeted Spindle and explained that Trotz was going to get them all killed. Spindle shrugged and said that this explains all the agitated spirits on this hill. They can smell Trotz, he guessed. Ancy questioned the words smell and agitated and then said that they were all doomed. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this section as I feel like it's really a transitional uh, a spot to kind of like maybe recollect your thoughts. But I really enjoyed kind of uh, the chemistry between all of these characters. You know, I think that they, they definitely I get the feeling that they've spent a lot of time together. Yeah, definitely. The the scenes with soldiers talking and soldiers humor are some of my favorite, like littler scenes in the series. Just because you think Erickson can't take the joke any farther, and then he adds another layer to it. Like with Ansi here, constantly getting paranoid at every new thing that's being said. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. You See, know, I mean... Blend, that, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. You weren't done. Just like the soldier named Blend being the one that sneaks up on everyone. Mm-hmm. And then Picker going, you, you, you didn't sneak up. I saw you walking up there. <laughs> Do you think Blend is like some type of camouflage expert? Because I feel like this is not the first time where she's like done this. You, you know? will learn more. Okay. All right. But yeah, no, what I was going to say is like, I didn't even, I didn't even catch on to you saying about like the whole paranoid. I mean, it's right there. Like I'm reading it. I can understand that. But to just add that little level of detail and explanation is like, oh, okay. Well, that fucking makes sense. But even even just the banter between Picker and Ansi about like the hair, the hair stuffed face yes. for dinner, you know, that and was funny. Like, oh, that was we're so gonna good. eat spindle shirt with figs. That's not what I meant by hair. <laughs> you know, like that's how I can imagine he's reacting. Well, and um, it's it's even more funny. This scene is more funny to me when you remember that Ansi's like full ginger and he's got a giant handlebar mustache it's like uh dr robotnik or something um there's a character oh my there's a character in looney tunes that has a giant red mustache and i always picture that oh yeah yeah yep (laughs) that probably works better than dr robotnik (laughs) that's how i picture antsy as yosemite cowboy hat i i just love these like more transitional comedic scenes because i feel like it shows more of the like the ability these guys have in terms of like combat like they never feel like they're on edge about anything or like anticipating anything i feel like it just shows like more the pacing of their battles but as well like how confident they are maybe like i could be just totally blown smoke here but like they they're thinking like i feel like it shows how well they work together like i don't think any other group of soldiers would be laughing and making these kind of jokes without being like actually really good friends. Like they know exactly what buttons to push. They know how to bother each other. It's like they've been together for so long. So I feel like as well, it shows like the level of skill they have. It's like a good sibling. Yeah. They got that rapport with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
one of the other things that I thought was just the this really brief comment about the Black Moranth being pretty silent, aloof, and grim. Apparently, according to Picker, they never take off their insect-like armor, which makes me think of the um, Wheel of Time, the Shan the Shanchen, how they have oh, oh, this yeah. armor, right? Sure, why I'm really picking that out. I just I feel like it adds just a little bit more of like curiosity for the the Moranth. I hadn't made that comparison in my mind at all, but that it seems like it fits. Yeah, I agree. I think like just details like that, whenever I read them, I always think, wow, that's just more depth slowly but slowly to build on these guys. Cause I mean, from what I remember, there's not much I we really know about them up to this point. So just like details like that, it just adds more of like, okay builds the picture slowly of who they are because i feel like one of these days we're going to get a full kind of bigger more clear reveal of who they are as of now it's like building kind of that mystique just to see i don't know who they are keep it mysterious right yeah and i know we get a little bit more about twist in this particular book than we have with any other moranth up to this point so i think that he's maybe slowly starting to explain the moranth or more specifically, some of their characters. You know, sometimes I almost forget that there are other colors, you know, to the Moranth. It only gets mentioned a few times in Gardens of the Moon. I have to keep that in my back of my head all the time. It's like, oh, yeah, there's other colors. They do other things. It's the Ajahs from Wheel of Time. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Except that the the group, I almost said the black group, but that sounds kind of weird. But the group that has the color black in this series are the quote-unquote good guys, instead of being the evil ones. Right, he stays away from those tropes, which is cool. The only other thing that I had is just, you get a really good sense of the weariness that Picker is feeling, just kind of based on her description of how they got there. Which, when I first read the section, I was a little... I, I was it was a little jarring for me because I'm like, wait a minute, why are they going back to that? Oh, she's recollecting. Whereas I yeah. thought it was like actually happening. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought we were just talking about being punished for mocking your fellow officer or whatever. So, yeah, uh, writing on the quarrels doesn't sound too fun. Mm. A pie that... in the frigid air on a giant dragonfly, pretty much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does not sound. I mean, as long as you're not bothered by heights, I guess, and. I imagine there's not seatbelts. I wonder how high they really go, though. Because, I mean, like, modern-day aircraft go, what, 30,000 feet? So I, these guys can't be going nearly that high, but still. A few thousand feet, maybe. I always pictured, like, two or 3,000 feet. So, I mean, which is still plenty high. I mean, enough enough yeah. to still be able to breathe, you know, up there. So, True. but yeah, that's really all I had. Uh, oh, wait, I did have one more thing. Um, is it just me or does Ancy seem to have a better sense of things than Ancy does? You said Ancy twice. No, I said, does Picker have a better sense of things than Ancy does? Did oh, you? I should have swore I heard you does. say answer Ancy twice. <laughs> yeah. I just, I feel she, like their roles should be switched. I mean, maybe. Were you going to say anything else? I kind of cut you off there. I apologize. No. Okay. No. Well, not anymore now, Justin. Jeez. <laughs> No, I, I was trying to think of a response to that, and all I could think of was maybe so. <laughs> but no, An Ancy is the paranoid idiot. That's that's who he is. But sometimes yeah. the paranoid ones aren't that crazy. I feel like he's just really 
again, I always go back to this argument between realism and pessimism. So I don't know if he's just kind of like being realistic about the situation, especially kind of at the end there when he's like, oh, shit, we're all doomed. The spirits smell, smell them and are agitated by it. Oh, great. You know, like I've seen this before. <laughs> yeah, I I do think it it is meant to be played for laughs is like they're like, so what do we do if quick Ben doesn't show up? Well, then we do this. Wait, so something's gone wrong. What's gone wrong? Why do we have to do that now? <laughs> yeah, he just kind of seems like the character that is always expecting the unexpected, but isn't really prepared for the unexpected. Another weird thing about Ancy is this whole time I thought he was a girl. And that's simply because uh, of uh, the Gardens of the Moon when Haran first shows up at the compound at Pale. And he's like, he, there, he's looking for Whiskey Jack. And I could have swore it was Ancy that answered or told him where Whiskey Jack was. But I could have swore that there were uh, female pronouns associated with Ancy. I mean, there very well could have been. I can think of a couple characters off the top of my head that just inexplicably switched genders during the series like erickson just forgot and uh, and switched things up yeah um one of the i guess it's not super spoilery but one of them he forgot and then realized it but used that to turn it into something that makes sense and then another is like just switching between this series and then one of the other books set in the world and it had been so long since writing those books that he just forgot gotcha so is it kind of like the uh the captain of the sappers and deadhouse gates situation where he just forgot to write him in so they just yeah so he just i think erickson is really good at just running with it whatever happens he's just like yeah you know what it lets me explore instead of (laughs) being bound by some imaginary walls yeah like the timeline when you got like as many characters as he does i I'd be thinking, well, that name sounds like this. And I'd just be, I'd get so myself so confused. Yeah, that's all I got for that section. Not a ton. Yeah. Again, I feel like it was just a very straight through, kind of a landing point, no pun intended, uh, for the story to allow you to just <laughs> take a step back and just enjoy some banter before moving on to maybe some heavier things. After a depressing dream, it was kind of nice to have a, them eating... What's his face's shirt? I can't remember his name. Spindle. Spindle. That's right. It's funny. His name is Spindle, and he's got a hair shirt. I was about to say. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and then Ancy is the Ancy one. Yep. They all got the seven dwarves here. Now it's all starting to blend the camouflage. I get it. Uh Aha. Picker. Picker of fights. Uh, Ah. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. That one. <laughs> fiddler fiddler because he happened to have a broken fiddle on his back when they were formed so hedge is he just like the homer simpson meme in the bushes or what <laughs> maybe he blew up a hedge maybe <laughs> <laughs> he blew up a giant hedge to get into a city and they were like okay hey, that's your name hedge. oh that's funny interesting okay that's okay i will keep that in mind moving forward that that was a very unintended aha moment so i appreciate that that's what we're here for to learn and aha to everything that's how i feel every time i record with nate i'm like oh i see now i see where this connects Mm -hmm. yep 
Hey, and sometimes we miss connections, Derek. Kidding. We do. <laughs> all right. Okay, I'm done. I'm done making fun of us. Okay, all right. We can move on. Well, uh, Nate or Matt, would one of you guys like to take this next section? I I can take it. Sure. Okay. Hopefully um, uh, I typed everything correctly and there's no spelling errors. I'll If I come across something, I can just say the line over again. Sure. Um, as he stood with the rest of the bridge burners, Perron asked what had Ansi all worked up. Trotz, with his teeth out, said that Blend was there and had heard everything. Perron said, well, that's just fucking great. What are they going to do now? Trotz shrugged his shoulders and was silent. Perron spoke with Twist, asking if his quarrel was well rested. He wanted him high in the air, and he wanted to know the moment they were spotted. The black-helmed face swung to look at him, calling him nobleborn, and said that they were already aware of his wishes. Perron said Captain would suffice, as he didn't need to be reminded of his precious blood. Also, how? And how the hell did he know that they knew? Twist said that they stood on their bargast land, and below was the blood of their ancestors. The more ants here. Perron said he was surprised they could hear anything in their helmets, but never mind, he still wants them overhead. Twist simply gave a nod. Perron took in his soldiers. He knew they were all veterans and wondered what it would be like to look up through their eyes instead of his, through the exhaustion that Perron was just barely being able to understand. He thought they would be soldiers to the end of their days. None would leave to try and find calm or peace. However, Whiskey Jacket said that once the war was over, the bridge burners would be retired, by force if necessary. Armies had traditions, and they had less to do with discipline than the truth of the human soul. Rituals shared at the beginning with every recruit, and also at the end. A type of closure that was recognition in every way imaginable, and it was also necessary. Rituals were used as a way to cope with trauma. A soldier couldn't be sent away without any sort of guidance, abandoned and lost. No guidance to navigate something that had not a care for their lives. Peron wondered at what this really did. What did the once soldier become? Did they only serve as a reminder of the horrors and losses in the past? No, he thought it was about facing forward, like a respectful guide with a hand on the shoulder. Peron felt sadness within him, a constant feeling that was always ready to overtake him. He thought to himself that once the white faces showed up, it might be possible that every one of them could end up with slit throats, and he wondered to the queen if that might actually be a mercy. The flutter of the wings of the quarrel brought his attention back. He called the bridge burners to their feet. It was time to march. Nicely done. Thanks for reading that. Sorry for that bit in the middle there. My mind just went totally blank and I could not figure out how to read that <laughs> fucking sentence. <laughs> no worries. I guess just listening to that, you read what I wrote. I know there. I had a hard time summarizing like this bit where it's talking about traditions and stuff. So I probably paraphrased a lot of that. But I guess my first thought, I just thought it was interesting that the Moranth can hear the uh, the blood of the Bargast ancestors calling. Um, I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. Well, I feel like they're kind of on high alert based on what happened in the previous chapter. Or chapter six. Excuse me. I don't uh, remember what happened in chapter six. At the end there <laughs> yeah. where uh, Boshelaine and Corporal kind of commandeer the Jag Hut spirit into their yeah. oh yeah yeah they take the bargast spirit that's right yeah so i would imagine that that didn't go unnoticed amongst the other bargast spirits so my guess is that they're all in a hubbub so to speak all getting hot and bothered mm -hmm. that that would also explain how they were why they were agitated at the end of the last section as well right i mean that's my head cannon around it whether that's right or wrong i, I mean I, I feel like this just, again, ties a little bit into the previous section. We get a little bit more of the, 
the camaraderie. It's weird to think or anticipate the bridge burners like just dissolving like that. I don't think that that's going to happen for them to kind of feel the sense of maybe some hope, retirement, like I'm done. You know, clearly they've been at this for some time. What specifically that would be? I mean, who knows? I, I can only imagine it would be, you know, uh, retirement, essentially, what that life would look like. Yeah. And uh, that's also why Peron is thinking about, like, how hardened the bridge burners are and how he thinks that they're they're soldiers and they would not do well. And, like, soldiers in general tend not to do super well right after they go from war to peace because... Even though the bridge burners are making jokes, super comfortable with each other, you know, there's a lot of like traumatic experiences underneath there. And I think maybe that's part of why they joke so much is to hide some of that. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like their mask, their shield is humor. I mean, they went they all went through the same stuff. They can understand it. And know know what it was like. Somebody else isn't going to know that. Yeah, I think uh when Nate was reading this, I was just thinking like, it's probably going to be a bit bittersweet for them. Cause I imagine they'll like kind of part ways, go back to, or try to go back to maybe the life they had before, if they had one or to a career they had before. Like when you dissolve something like that, it'd probably be just tough in general, just to be like, well, some of these people, like you've grown emotionally and just like shared so much of your life with them. That would definitely be really hard just to leave that behind, I think. So, oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure they'd be like, Finally, it's over. We can stop fighting. We don't have to worry about things. But at the same time, they're probably like, at the same time, it was kind of the thing keeping me going was just being here with these people. Right. Yeah, that's legit. Very well put, y'all. I don't really know if I have a ton for this section. I feel like it was just kind of an extenuation of the previous section nearing off towards the end of the chapter, really. Yeah, my thought here that I jotted down is they're talking about the queen. I assume it must be the queen of dreams. It's the only one I can think of. Yeah, I would agree. But that was all I had. Other than that, Perron just continues to be depressed as fuck. Like he ha he has that thought about we might all end up with slit throats, and that might be that might be okay. It's like whoa, okay there. But instead <laughs> of being outwardly about it, like Antsy would be, he's just mm -hmm. being stoic. Yep, I feel like he's doing the classic commander thing of not letting himself get too close to the soldiers under his command. Do you think that's going to backfire on him? I mean, you've read the series, so well, I mean... Do you... do you guys think it'll backfire? I guess I've never really thought about it before, but yeah, I can see it going both ways. To have rapport with your team, I feel, is a, a mark of a good leader, whereas not having rapport is more of like, I'm your boss, do as I say, not as I do type thing. I will always lean towards not necessarily seeing myself as above somebody else or a team, but like getting down into the the mud and dirt and doing the things with them, you know, I think that is how you earn respect in someone's eyes, because that's how I've respected managers and bosses before ones that actually lead instead of just saying, you know, go do this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I know for like myself, even just like with a boss, like I'm going to have more respect for somebody who's either they've done the job too, or they get in there and get their hands dirty versus somebody who doesn't really know what it's like they're telling you you know okay go do this but um they don't like you don't like you ever have like a boss where like they they want you to do a job that they themselves have no idea how to do i'm not about that matt and i have both kinds of boss at our work right now 
Oh, well, lucky you guys. <laughs> yeah, I was about to mention, like, I've seen just in general, like, people that know how to lead and then people that just know how to kind of delegate, but not really. And so I think with Perron, it can go like for his sanity, he may not want to get too close to them. He may want to just be in that kind of like pass down the chain of command type of thing. Because like if he does kind of get more emotionally involved, then that's where it's like makes it hard to live after that, I think. So kind of both ways for him. I also feel like Perron is under his mind is preoccupied. And while it's not being said, we have gotten glimpses of his internal struggle, so to speak. What exactly that means or how that turns out, I can imagine that it is a weight on his shoulders that he doesn't know how to decipher. Some of these other things that may not be as important to him are being outweighed by what he's going through. Yeah, and uh, like two days ago, he found out he was the master of the deck and like one of the most important people in the world. And he also got two massive revelations about the Talani masks and Kaladin brood. And so, yeah, he's got, he's got a lot going on a little bit. Exactly. Well, I think that was a good dis- discussion, uh, better outcome than I thought for this itty bitty little section here, but I don't know about <laughs> you. I'm ready to move on. If you are. Yeah. I, I yeah. feel fine with that. All right. Um, This one's a lengthy one, so unless someone else wants to do it, I will happily read it. The dark, close air was filled with a sticky mist. A sickly mist. Quick Ben felt himself moving through it, his will struggling against its current. After a few more moments, he ended his questing and slipped into another warren. This warren fared slightly better. Some kind of infection had seeped in from the physical world, corrupting every sorcerer's path he attempted. Fighting nausea, he pushed himself forward. He thought to himself that this has the stench of the crippled god, but yet the lands he approached were occupied by the Panion Domen. It was an obvious attempt at self-defense, but Quick did not believe in coincidence. There was a deeper truth. The crippled god may be chained, but he can feel the Ascendant's hand pulling at invisible threads. The faintest of smiles touched the mage's lips as he thought it to himself that this was a worthy challenge. He shifted warrens once again and found himself on the trail of something. A presence was ahead, leaving a strange and lifeless wake. He thought to himself that it wasn't a surprise as he was striding on the edge of Hood's realm. He suddenly felt uneasy, but managed to push it down. He discovered that Hood's poison was resisting the poison better than any of the others. The ground beneath him was clay, soft and damp. The haze filling the air felt heavy and oily. He slowed his pace, and the ground he came across was no longer smooth. Deep incisions covered the ground, glyphs covered columns and panels, primitive writing and the wizard suspected. He crouched down and reached down. He said out loud to himself that it was either freshly cut or timeless. A faint tingle sent his hand withdrawing. He told himself that there were wards or binding, or that they were wards or bindings of some kind. Stepping carefully to avoid the glyphs, Quick Ben moved forward. He skirted a sinkhole that had been filled with colored stones. The incisions grew thicker and more crowded, forcing the wizard to slow his pace even more. It was becoming difficult to navigate on the clay floor. Bindings of loosely coiled power here on Hood's floor. A dozen paces ahead was a small object surrounded in glyphs. His frown deepened as he edged closer. Sticks and grasses on a round, pale hearthstone 
like the makings of a fire. Then he saw it tremble. He thought to himself that these binding spells belonged to it, its soul trapped, as he once did to Hairlock. Someone's done to it. He moved as close as he could and then crouched. He told the figure that he wasn't looking well. The creature hissed and barga- in bargast and said that the wards pursued him, thus closing its web and trapping him here. He can go no further. Quickben said that he sees and asks if he's from the white-faced Bargas clan. The figure said that he still was. Quick told him that it had escaped its barrow and eluded the binding spells of its kin, and could he really expect that his kin would welcome him back? The small bundle of sticks said that he was ripped from his barrow, and that he can see that Quickben is traveling to the white-faced clan, as he can see it in the mage's eyes. He says to the mage that he will tell the tale, so the white face know the truth of all of it, and Quick will need to tell them. He will give him his true name. Quick Ben said that this was a bold offer, but what is to prevent him from twisting the bundle of sticks to his will? The bundle of sticks snarled and said that Quick could not be any worse than his former masters. He says that his name is Telemundus, born of the first hearth of the knotted clan, the first child born on these lands. He asks Quick if he knew the significance in that. Quick replied and said that he was not afraid. Telemandus said that his previous masters, the necromancers, had almost worked it out of him, almost found out his name. And if they would have, they would have uncovered the secrets that even his own people have forgotten. He asks the mage if he knows the significance of the upside-down trees on his barrow. He said that they hold the soul and keep it from wandering. Telemandus went on to explain that they came to this land from the seas. He tells Quick to look upon the face of a bargast, one that has been stripped of flesh and muscle. Quick said that he's seen a bargast skull before. Telemandus asked if he'd seen those skulls animated. Quickben said no, but he's seen something similar, something squatter, the features slightly more pronounced. The bargast soul said slightly, but squatter? As if disproving the statement. He said this was no surprise and said that they never went hungry, as the sea provided. Moreover, the Tartheno Toplakai were among them. The mage puts it together that they were once Talani Mass, the ones that missed the ritual. Telemanda said that they did not defy the ritual. They failed to arrive on time. Their pursuit of the Jaghut had forced them to venture into the seas. In their isolation from their kin, they changed, and their distant kin did not. When they did find land generous enough to allow a birth, they would bury their boats. This is why the custom of trees on the barrows was born. Quick told him to tell the tale, but first a question. What would Telemandus do if he were to free him from his bindings? Telemandus said that he couldn't. Quick said that this was not an answer. Telemandus said that he would seek to free the first families, as the ancient bindings have kept them captive. Well meant as this was, because they were worshipped by the living clans, but still, nonetheless a curse. They must be freed to grow in their true power. Quickben said so that they could ascend into true gods. Telemendus said that the Bargast refused to change, generation after generation. Their kind are dying out, and they rot from within. Quick asked if survival was a right or a privilege. The bundle of sticks and grasses said the latter, but it must be earned. Quickben held out his hand, palm up, he said it was a worthy wish, and a clump appeared in his palm. He said that there was salt in this clay. Clay is usually airless and lifeless. A writhing clump took shape on his palm. 
Quick Ben went on and said that the simplest of creatures could defeat the mightiest of sorceries. The worms, red like blood, fell in clumps on the glyph-strewn ground. Quickie, <laughs> quick, explains that these are native to a distant land and they feed on salt. They can turn the hardest clay into sand. To put it another way, they bring the air to the airless. The worms spread out and they started to burrow. They also breed like maggots. See those glyphs? They're on the edges. Their bindings are crumbling. Can you feel it, Telemandus? Can you feel it loosening? Telemandus asked, who the fuck are you? Quick responded that in the eyes of the gods, he's just a lowly saltworm. Quick said that he would hear Telemandus' tale now. I liked that section. I did too. I was not expecting yeah, speaking of Speaking of ancient history, right? Mm-hmm. I, I won't lie, though. I completely forgot about that section. When you started to read, I was like, did, did, I, did I skip this part? Did I just not read this portion? <laughs> then we got to the end, and I was like, oh, now I remember it. I feel like the explanation of Quick getting to the Telemandus is a little weird when you read it the first time. Because you're like, you know, he's hop, he's born hopping, right? You know? Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that I kind of, at the time when I was writing this, made me like really think is when he's talking about, or he's thinking to himself, rather, there was a deeper truth. And my first thought was, so from what I've gathered from Gethel and his like sudden lust for vengeance and what was revealed about the House of Chains, I can only assume that the Jaghut themselves have a lust for vengeance against the Talani Moss. Is it possible that the crippled god has raised the Jaghuts back from the dead, or their spirits perhaps, which may coincide with the spirits up and disappearing at the end of chapter five when Whiskey Jack and Quick Ben were talking. Also, Panion was said to be a Jaghut word by Pran Cole, so it seems to make sense to me and kind of an easy game to get what the Crypt of God wants, right? Throw these worthy adversaries in the face of this coming ritual you know or the second gathering so that's just kind of what i thought about it whether that's right or not i know that at the end of chapter five they say rivy spirits but i kind of almost feel like these these cultures are all connected in some way based on kind of what gets revealed a little bit later in the section you know is it far-fetched to think that the rivy weren't imas that didn't make the ritual for whatever reason or even potentially jag huts like I, I can't say anything here. <laughs> well, Matt, Derek, what do you all think? So as you're talking, it made me, and as you're reading it, it made me think like sort of along those lines, but I was thinking more like the crippled God obviously has to be with the Panion Domen or whatever it's called. But like, it makes me wonder more of what he practices, like what's his thing? Because obviously it's like rotting away at things and it just makes me think of like the cannibalism that we see and that they've talked about and just like, kind of like the crazy bizarre thing so i mean i when you mention that i don't think that's far from the truth i think he's just trying to find like very emotionally charged groups of people that like are willing to kind of follow anything to kind of find their own way to get a source of power or put themselves in charge or kind of push away their enemies because i mean this continent the malazans have been trying to take it over for a hot minute so maybe these guys are thinking like hey maybe we get rid of them and we can be the new people in charge and the cripple god is just using them as a tool just to further his purposes while they think they're doing their own thing so right like i i I, I definitely think it's a possibility 
I think there's a distinction to be made, though. I don't think it's so much that the crippled God is with the Panny and Doman. I think it's the other way around. I, it's, I feel like that's important just because I feel like the crippled God's probably the bigger deal. Like, you know, you guys are going to fight for me. I'm not fighting for you, that type of deal. I, I definitely agree that they're linked somehow. I do think maybe the way, which way it goes is important, though, too. Well, it kind of seems like the crippled God is feeding on tragedy. You know, and granted, we don't have a lot of history on a lot of these elder races, so to speak. But I would imagine that what we know about the Talan, I mean, there's two instances where they have essentially attempted genocide, right? Like with the Soul Taken and then with the Jaghut. The Soul Taken were a problem to the Talani Mas, from what I can understand from Chapter 7 and kind of my new understanding of the correct turn of events. But as well as the Jaghut as well. So, I mean, what's to stop them from doing that with anybody else? Who's to say that the Kachain Chamal? Well, I guess the Kachain Chamal were, I guess, extinct long before the Jaghut. I feel like they don't mention Talani Moss, but so it could be the Talani Moss's ancestors that maybe took them out. I don't know. He's feeding on tragedy, and thus is the House of Chains, right? Like he wants flawed and, as you said, emotionally charged characters on his team to be entered into this realm's game you know yeah and i i think um i think Derek makes a good point that like it's not he's fighting for them but like he's there he's just kind of using them is that kind of how you were phrasing it like i I definitely think he's doing his own thing and this is just another piece to the puzzle of him trying to cause chaos yeah i mean because i think he could he could probably do plenty of damage on his own. Obviously, like he can. It sounds like he yeah. could end the world, if, you know, if things go far enough. So this so the Panians are maybe just speed things up some, you know. So I mean, they're there, so he's going to use them. Yeah, like a catalyst to get things going. Right. Yeah. Interesting conversation. I like this. One of the things that I thought was cool was when he kind of unveils and discovers that Hood's poison is resisting better than any of the other Warrens. And I mean, like, that's not new information. We know that. But a thought that I had is that, is it resisting the poison better? Because regardless of the realm, death exists everywhere kind of a thing. I, yeah, I was kind of thinking that a little bit, but I was just thinking like, maybe it's because Hood's realm is just so full of, beings like maybe that's a form of energy or something that kind of pushes back as maybe some of the other horns aren't filled enough with like power to resist it like yeah they may be a it may be a powerful warren or something or there may be a couple powerful beings but compared to hood's realm guys loaded i mean you know how many people are going there all the time (laughs) so it's like i think that may be part of it like he's just so big like i mean if you think about that sense it's like uh, it's just so big so it's going to resist it longer or maybe that as well it's like death is just a part of everything but i feel like the crippled god has kind of a piece in death like he feels corrosive and feels like he rots away at things so i feel like even that realm you just completely erode away into his own thing maybe oh so kind of like an ink stain on a single piece of paper versus a stack of paper yeah i like that. interesting analogy there justin i've not heard that one before it's the artist in me. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll give it to you. So, yeah. The whole filled with colored, like this sinkhole that he came across that's filled with colored stones. I thought it was cool because I think Quick Ben alludes to their prayers from like many different languages. 
which I mean makes sense, right? I mean, he's the god of death. He's not he's indiscriminate when it comes to who's who who is dying, you know. I uh, I really like Quick Ben's thought after that too, like manhood your warren is a shithole like all those clerks that have died why don't you just get them to clean the place up <laughs> i don't remember that but that's funny that happens like right after the colored stones thing just i think like, you i'll let you mention it i wouldn't have if you didn't yeah like man your home is messy hood yeah it's frequently traffic so i mean all the people coming in <laughs> and out he's probably like what am I going to do? It's just going to get dirty again. You could, like, you know, at least take your shoes off before you come in. It's like mm. after you clean a litter box, like, the cat just goes right in and pieces, pisses and pees in it, or poops and pees in it. You're like, God damn it, yeah. I just fucking yeah. clean this. So, Definitely true. One of the other things that I thought was really cool is I loved the way that Telemandus was described. Having an acorn for head, and then imagining, like, sticks for bones, and then, like, the grasses is like muscle, sinew, tendons, or muscle, sinew, tendons, and skin. It was just Cooper. It was cool to imagine. Imagine that. Yeah, literal stick figure. Right. I wonder if that's a knock on people who. And again, kind of like an art thing. But a lot of a lot of times that I hear, they're like, "Oh man, you're so good. I can't even draw a stick figure." So I'm wondering if like <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> inspiration for that. I doubt it, but you never know. It's interesting. But yeah, again, a cool thought. Um, obviously, we know that Telemandus's previous masters were Boshelaine and Corbel Roach. I figured that I would point that out. I also kind of get the feeling that they tortured the spirit. It's not really like given any specific details, but it kind of makes it seem that they tortured him to get, like when he says he almost found out his name, or they almost found out his name, and that had almost worked it out of him makes me think that they were not nice about oh i'm sure they were oh yeah i think in in that chapter i think is it beauchelaine i think he i think he makes a comment about like we were so close to getting that spirit's answers and then the demons attacked and he got away yeah yeah i remember that i guess what is what is beauchelaine and corporal's play there why do they need to know that information just because they're researchers they're, so, you know they're weird. just curious about everything like they asked gruntle about the jagut and animander rake and the malazan empire and they just they're just like they're travelers they like seeing other cultures yeah i feel like they're a little nosy though don't have the nicest of intentions well i, de- I mean they definitely have ulterior motives for sure like i don't know what they are but like they got something up their sleeve mm-hmm. i mean you you can't be a necromancer and a demon summoner by being nice dudes. <laughs> yeah. That's like the best Fair. way to put it. Because, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm mistaken in how I remember this, but, like, when they're asking for, like, help with their caravan, they're talking to the caravan people, like, they kind of scared Gruntel by some of their comments. Like, and they're just so casual about it. I remember that, and I was like, these guys are just unsettling. <laughs> Anytime they come up, I'm always like, what are they going to do? Like, you, I'd never feel like there's a clear answer of what they're going to do or what their aim is, which I mean, in terms of storytelling, that's awesome. Cause then you're just like more engaged of like, who are these guys? But they pop up frequently enough that, and infrequently enough that I'm just like, these guys just keep weirding me out. Like, what are they, 
what are they doing? Like it's a necromancer. So I feel like a necromancer is probably trying to figure out some way to bring back like an ancient power maybe, or like figure out like a way to live longer than the demon dude's just there to summon an army when they need it. I don't know. Fair enough. No, those are good thoughts. I like that. They're just, they're just such a mystery to me and I, I can't quite put my finger on them, but I cannot wait to read the wiki at the end of these 10 books on them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. to get the full to get the full story on Beauchelin and Corbel Brooch, you're gonna have to go to the Beauchelin and Corbel Brooch novellas, which we're gonna do. Yep. After this book, we're gonna start Blood Follows. I think it's only like 97 pages. It'll go quick. I feel like that'll be like five or six episodes tops. I guess we'll see when we get there. Yeah. Moving on to probably my favorite part of this section. It you know when they're talking about. Traveling with the Tartheno Toblakai, describing the shapes of the skulls, thing like that. And then he explains that they were forced into the seas to venture into the seas in pursuit of the Jaghut. And in their isolation from their kin, they changed and their distant kin did not. So am I interpreting that Toblakai and Bargast were both amassed then? Both missing the ritual in some way, shape or form? But because of separation from chasing the Jaghut, Toblakai were the ones that changed and the Bargast did not. Or the Toblakai evolved, or am I uh, mixing that up? Am I close? Raffo. <laughs> Fuck! I mean, it could just be more cultural in some aspects as well. Like It could just be like they chose a different path, but I mean, I don't think you're wrong in thinking maybe they missed something. I do love Talamandis' explanation. Like, no, we didn't defy the ritual. We just didn't make it on time. We slept late. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you got to imagine that the oceans are probably, you know, filled with ice, right? Have you ever watched like a cruise liner trying to get through ice? It takes a long time. Or you sink. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Titanic. Titanic. (laughs) Yeah. That and the Malazan world is about the size of our own, probably a bit bigger. So. Mm. Hmm. that's a long way there's a lot of ocean space then but can you can you confirm that the toblakai and bargast are like the same they're not the same but they're related and that's about all okay okay related's good i'll take related (laughs) you gotta take your wins where you can get them huh right yeah exactly exactly (laughs) and then when he goes on to explain that when they find land generous enough to allow birth, they would bury their boats and kind of uh, settle there, right? Is kind of what I took from that. Do you remember in Chapter 7 when Ekovian was talking about the city of Capustan and its history? And he mentions the native Kapan and the Daru kind of nomading in from the West. They didn't mix, but he explains that the natives to the city were a generation before were nomads. And because of Capistan being on the river Caitlin, that the native Capan were likely seafarers, which is what Telemandus is saying here. So I just thought that that was super cool. And is it possible that they likely built the city around Prince Jalarkin's palace? As that was said to have existed before the arrival of the Bargast slash Mass. I don't know what I was talking there, but I know we've only been a little bit. Right. Yeah. We just get, we get a lot of like, history of Capistan in very like little fragments and Prince Jalarkin's tower is explained a lot. So I think that to summarize summarize my, my rambling note here is that it seems that 
these bargast right were settling in that area some of them became native japan some of them probably moved to the hills right and then the Daru came in to uh habitated as well is my understanding of that or they were driven out by the native capan to the bargas range no answers for us justin sounds good <laughs> no no I answers but rafo the other thing that i thought was uh really sad to think about was when telemandus kind of explains like what he would do and he would seek to free the first families and it's just you know while the bargas have good intention but, you know, souls being captive by bindings and the upside down trees and the, the wards and thing like that. It just kind of seems like they're just stuck in a purgatory. So it's almost like the Bargast are shooting themselves in the foot by not allowing the ones that pass to ascend. Thus probably stifling them in the reason why they haven't grown as a culture while they're just stagnant is because they're not learning anything new because they have no spirits that have moved on to learn new. Yeah, I think that was a really good way to say that. Cool. I don't suck yeah. all the time. Uh, <laughs> Nobody I thought you said that, you were Justin. done making fun of yourself. I know, I know. This is what I do. I open the door and shut it on myself. Um, <laughs> the last thing that I had was I loved how Quick compared himself to the saltworms, destroying the the wards and the, uh, what else did he call them? The glyphs that were holding... Yeah the telemandus because i mean yes he's totally that in the eyes of the god he's a lowly little saltworm 13 or 11 saltworms trapped within him and, uh, <laughs> now, see see to me when i read that this time that he's just a lowly saltworm my first reaction was to go fuck off quick because we've seen him have <laughs> straight up conversations with shadow throne and the crippled god and a, like a servant or something of burn and so it's like yeah he is I, I was like yeah the gods have taken notice of you quick ben i at the same time i think though like he does try to keep the gods at bay and be like yes they know about him like you know about the existence of him but like they're gonna be focused on other things like i feel with rake it was kind of that way he's like i exist i'm a mage and whiskey jack's like yeah he's kind of a special mage and rake's like okay cool we'll just you know keep him in our peripheral vision like we don't have to worry about them then like they know enough about him to be satisfied but they don't know like the full extent as well i feel like that's maybe what he's thinking is but like think, but going off of your what you're saying is that i think the gods think that they're you know they're compared to these glyphs and these bindings right whoever created uh -huh. these glyphs and bindings have all of the confidence in the world that they're going to do their job however the smallest of creatures these like little red worms right bring air bring the fresh of breath air uh into what is airless the smallest things can take down even the most confident being you know i think is kind of where matt and i are going along with that yeah so but you know nate you've seen the true power of quick ben we've only seen a third of it so yeah i i think maybe a good way to put it is that quick wants to have his cake and eat it too yeah he wants to play the he wants to play these games with the gods but he doesn't want to be noticed yep and like i think i think you bring up great point nate like i didn't even think about it that way of just like you literally talk with shadow throne revealed who you are and dipped out and then like he has a conversation with burns like servant and is like 
being tasked with like kind of delivering the message and then he talks with the crippled god and barely managed to escape so it's like he's not it's not like these are gods that are just kind of more minor kind of players these are like the big kind of like we see them all the time because they're obviously doing stuff and so like at the same time i think he isn't playing it too quiet at honchos yeah makes sense makes sense well that's all i had for that uh last section there i thought we had one more after that for some reason but oh same it's all right (laughs) that's that's the end of it i think yep that is the end of it um i have a question for you nate and you can probably end up being a rafo uh answer hairlock in the warren of chaos does that have anything to do is it a possibility that hairlock was working for the panion domen in gardens of the moon not the Panion Doman specifically. I think Kerlock was doing his own thing. And I think him going through chaos a lot influenced him. No, Herlock was doing Herlock's thing. Okay. Does he get brought up more? Like, do do they speculate on him? Or is like, this is the last we've seen? No, Herlock's dead and gone. I mean, yes. Yes. But like, as far as do other characters oh, yeah, speculate he's, about his intent? He, he's... So he's dead and gone physically, but he's pretty much dead and gone for the story as well. You won't hear. I don't know if you'll hear anything else about Herlock throughout the Book of the Fallen. Gotcha. That's fine. He's a dickhead. I didn't like him. Me neither. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of nice to know that uh, as sad as it is, you know, based on what Telemannus is saying about Boshalene and Corvo Brooch and how he was snared. I guess maybe it's a little bit knowing that Quick Ben essentially did the same thing to hairlock maybe a little bit of redeemable redemption in our (laughs) readers minds that yes he was an asshole but he was definitely stuck might be an asshole but he's our asshole god damn it right yeah Yeah. he might be an asshole but he's an asshole that we see through his eyes Mm. (laughs) (laughs) funny i don't want to see out of that brown eye (laughs) 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 well i guess What's next for you guys then? So you're going to do nine through whatever. Um, So this episode will be um, seven through nine. And then our next episode is actually our next episode is actually it's going to be only about 90 pages total. So not a ton, but we're doing 10 through 13 our next episode so that we can finish up book two of Memories of Ice just without having to do two episodes out of it, split it. We just want to do four chapters all in one go because that's fun. Gotcha. Uh, so it sounds like we've got some shorter chapters coming up then. Yeah, it's it's like 92 pages for the four chapters, I want to say. Okay, that sounds manageable then. So, Matt, have you read the next chapter yet or no? Uh, yeah, we, we, we just recorded chapter nine, not last night, but the night before, uh, I think. Tuesday, yeah. We recorded oh, yeah, okay. chapter nine on Tuesday. Because we were going to do it last week, but then holidays happened, so then we just pushed it to this week (laughs) and i was sick as a dog that's true oh yeah that's no fun yeah chapter nine or chapter chapter eight did we read chapter nine or eight no we just this is eight. this is eight eight. yeah Yeah. chapter chapter nine was definitely interesting i have not finished it yet so oh okay well then we won't talk about it that's what the next episode's for justin yeah come on now (laughs) but dude when you get to the end you let me know when you read that last section in chapter nine you best be ah yes so okay 
Well, yeah. I guess when I get home, I'll if I get when I get home from my parents, I'll do that because I feel like I'm the odd kid out. I'm missing out here. Yeah, I, I read it yesterday at work because it was a little bit slower. So I just reread the chapter again. I feel like I haven't read any of Malazan for so long. So when we were talking about some things today, I was like, when did we read that? That was a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's It's been a while. And uh, we've had the holidays. And then I'm also, my walls are bare behind me because I'm moving on Saturday. Oh, well, congrats. So, I mean, maybe. Hopefully it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is a okay, good well, thing. Good. Good. Finally moving out of my parents' basement. So. <laughs> well, congratulations. So, yeah, it's just been busy, and we actually haven't released an episode in two weeks because I haven't had time to edit one. Well, that's that's all right. It's uh, when when did you, you just set out our four hour one? It's been a little bit. It's going to be a little bit for us, too, just because Justin's burned through our bank of episodes that we had with the holidays and me being gone. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, having to record twice to complete one episode, it kind of put a damper on things. But yeah, yeah, I'm so excited to get to the rest of this book. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more of this too. And I've like when I have been reading anything, I've been trying to power through and finish Empire of Silence. And I've got like probably 70, 80 pages left now. And um, I'm just trying to get done with that book. Well, <laughs> Almost there. Almost. Too much to read in one go, though. I just I, I can't power through it and finish it in one more sitting. <laughs> probably two. Yeah. Well, fellas, uh, thanks for the, the two part episode. It was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, it was. Well, uh, I'm sure that there probably won't be another time in the timeline where we'll match up on chapters as you guys go speeding on by. Yeah, we'll maybe have to have you back for a wrap-up, some sub-book sometime. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be fun. Then, yeah. yeah, We'll definitely have to figure out a way to work together again. It was a good time. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, you know, our shortest episode uh, or shortest session Probably since our <laughs> prologue of Gardens of the Moon, just a little over an hour. Yeah, true. Oh, well, wait. No, we started at eight. Never mind. I don't know yeah, why we started at eight. Cool. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Good luck Thanks with for... uh, every, the rest of the chapters. <laughs> yeah. You guys too. I'll, I'll be looking forward to listening to your guys' episodes as I, you know, complete the chunk that you guys have done. So I'll still get through them. It'll just be at a slower pace. So have fun, Matt. Enjoy it. And uh, Nate, I mm -hmm. guess you already know what's coming. So keep, <laughs> oh, don't spoil it. I'll enjoy every second of it. <laughs> Good. Well, okay. uh, yeah, I guess enjoy the rest of your all nights. Yeah, yeah we'll see well. you guys. Hey, guys. See, you. see you soon.
CMJ's Epic Quest. CMJ's Epic Quest. CMJ's Epic Quest. CMJ's Epic Quest. CMJ's Epic Quest.